Thank you so much for tuning in to the Spiro Avenue Show. You could follow us on social media at Spiro Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also watch our full episodes and clips and highlights on YouTube. And we would appreciate it if you could hit that subscribe button for us. Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. This breaking news, an active shooter situation at Oxford High School. An alleged lone gunman, a 15-year-old student, is in custody at this hour. Police say he was armed with a semi-automatic handgun. He was charged as an adult with four counts of first-degree murder, as well as assault and weapons charges, and a rare count of terrorism causing death. What was the parent's involvement? Prosecutors are now charging the parents of 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Prosecutors say the Crumblies were aware of disturbing and violent drawings found on their son's desk. They did nothing. They did nothing. Uh, welcome to the Spiro Avenue Show. You know, we have been having a lot of fun around here lately, so we were having a little bit too much fun, I think, so we had to make it a little more serious, and that's where we land today. You know, the the polarization that we have in the country is well-stated, perhaps overstated. I think we understand that, and everyone disagrees with uh, each other about basically everything at this point. The one thing I think everyone can agree on is that school shootings are maybe the worst thing that is uh, – pretty much uniquely American, whether you have a disagreement on the cause, the solution, or whatever, I think that's a different story for a different day. But the one thing I'll say is I think it is the uniquely American worst thing that we have on a wide scale. Now, still statistically rare, but even a couple a year when no one else in the world is having them ever is a pretty embarrassing disparity for whatever you think of any other issue. And we all know about Columbine and, and Parkland, Sandy Hook. This is something I think it, it hurts always, no matter where it is. But when we had the shooting here back in November at Oxford High School, it did for, I think, a lot of people in the state of Michigan hit a little bit differently. I think it landed differently. I can always speak from my own experience. The studio we're sitting in right now, we could be to Oxford High School if we hopped in our car in about nine minutes. It's less than 10 miles away. So seeing it affect people that we know, uh, seeing it affect our neighbors and our neighbors' neighbors certainly does land differently. And it's, it's an emotional issue. It's a difficult issue to navigate. I think it's something that is so hot where you have people, uh, just to name one big example, Jeffrey Figer, who's a powder keg in his own way. And then you have people that hate him that are powder kegs on the other side of this thing. And it's difficult waters to wade into, no pun intended, for tonight's show. Uh, I'm kind of staying out of the emotion for the most part tonight. Uh, it's there, but I'm going to try to bury it as much as I can. I want a pragmatic discussion on the school shooting that affected us in our backyard. Certainly 95% of our audience, based on the metrics we look at, are from the state of Michigan, are watching from the state of Michigan. So this is our backyard. This is not Sandy Hook, Parkland, Columbine all terrible, but this is, this is hitting home. I want to stay into the actual case here. I want to stay into the facts of that. And when I knew I wanted to get into this topic, there was one guy that came to mind to bring in. And this is a guy who, full disclosure, is a longtime friend of mine and of the show, has been a supporter of the show, uh, a brilliant attorney from a family of them. This is my good friend, Wade Fink, a defense attorney from Birmingham. How you doing, Wade? Welcome. I'm well, Justin, and then thanks for the, the kind words and, and having me. I've been watching it since 
show number one. And I, I'll, I'm going to say this, get this over with now so I don't have to compliment you the rest of the show. This is absolutely one of the most quality uh, shows that we have in Michigan on sports and whatever the topic is, you do a great job. Obviously, the studio, your staff, everybody's amazing, but the quality of the actual show, the interviews, the topics, the analysis, you can compete with anybody. So I, I've been chomping at the bit to be here. I'm glad I finally got invited. I appreciate it. I wish it were under happier circumstances, sure. but I mean, your circumstances where your expertise lies isn't absolutely. some fucked up shit. I mean, it's it's like, absolutely I often mean, is. You know, I don't think you've represented any school shooters in your day, but I mean, you've represented uh, represented kids accused of, of, you know, potentially being dangerous. So oh, there you go. I've, I've been there and that's the problem is uh, how do you delineate? And I'm sure we'll get into those topics, but uh, the proverbial fucked up shit that you talk about, uh, that is usually what I'm dealing with. Yeah. And yeah. so I think, and, and look, I've known you forever I, since 2004. I know you're a smart guy. You're, you're a measured guy. You have strong opinions and you know your shit. So I think you are uniquely positioned to help us kind of get through this Thank you. from a pragmatic standpoint. I, I don't want to get into the politics of what kind of gun legislation. I want to keep this to what we're going to see, what we might see in court coming up in the next year or so. I mean, who knows? These things tend to get delayed a lot. We'll see about that. I mean, you're more well-versed in civil procedure. I took a civil procedure class in law school. You actually do this shit. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I don't, this is going to be a, a difficult, weird year, I think. And I'm trying to make sense of it, have our audience make sense of it. You get the news clips, four minutes here, two minutes here. We played a little excerpt there. None of these segments are more by nature, more than a few minutes long. I want to get a little bit deeper. So setting the table for the Crumbly case, uh, again, the tragic events take place November 30th, uh, this past year, 2021. Ethan Crumbly, the perpetrator alleged, uh, alleged perpetrator, 15-year-old sophomore at the school, spotted with a disturbing drawing in this class. Uh, sent to the principal's office. His parents are summoned from work, wherever they were. Uh, they meet with school officials and Ethan. They're sitting in a room. Again, this is the facts as we know them. And the school recommends that they take him off-site, take their 15-year-old son off-site, get him out of the school and out of there and just out of their hair and then get him a therapist, essentially. Parents refuse, according to the prosecutor's office. Uh, Ethan Crumbly returns to class about two, two and a half hours later, pulls a gun, ends up shooting uh, several of his classmates, killing four of them, wounding seven others, traumatizing hundreds more. Uh, one of the, I would argue, more, if not the most avoidable of these, I can't recall in my time, I've studied Columbine immensely, Parkland immensely, two great books on each of those by Dave Cullen, a great writer out of New York. Uh, the warning signs here were right in front of their face, right in real time. Um, the summary of charges here, we'll put up that just to see where we're at with Ethan Crumbly. We're going to start with Ethan Crumbly, but we're not going to spend as much time because I think the parents are actually the more interesting case from a ambiguity, uh, you know, legal perspective. So the charges against Ethan Crumbly, the one that's going to be interesting, one count of terrorism causing death, an extremely rare, to my understanding, charge to find four counts, obviously first degree murder. Seven counts of assault with intent to murder in reference to the seven wounded that did not perish. And then 12 counts of possession of a firearm and the commission of a felony. So serious shit. He's in a lot of trouble. Um, we'll start here. What do you think his attorney's facing here? Because I think to the general public, it's just a matter of how bad it is for him. There's not going to be an acquittal. We understand that. But like, is, does he have any hope of mitigation or is he just dead? 
Th- that is the case, you know, for for Ethan Crumbly. Let, let me start, and I, I think there's value in this by saying that, you know, as a father and, and your father too now and a recent father, um, you know, the sadness is, you know, exacerbated, right, by knowing you have children that will be going to school or and friends and family, and as we get older, that have kids in, that are school age. So, to those families and anybody watching this that has an interest in it or is connected to it, um, let me express how genuinely um, uh, sorry I am for for the pain because it I can't I can sympathize I can't empathize, uh, not many of us can. Um, it, it is horrifying. And what we talk about here, and I want to talk about the legal system and 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 how that works, so people have a better understanding of when these things these things happen. Um, and they hear about what the procedure is going to be and what's going to happen in court and using the terms allegedly in this. And I think if we put some meat on the bones, I think that's helpful to people. So I don't uh, hopefully anything I say doesn't minimize just how horrific um, this was. I, I was going to stick to how this process goes. Um, so with that said, I mean, you asked, Justin, what's the lawyer what's the lawyer facing and how uh, to navigate this? I mean, this this is a mitigation case. And. Ethan's entire case, Mr. Crumbly's entire case is going to be, is he going to get life without parole or is he going to have the possibility of parole? I mean, if we just want to cut to the meat uh, of what this is about, that's what this is about. Now, the United States Supreme Court over the last 15 years has chipped away at uh, mandatory penalties for uh, juveniles. Uh, In 2015 in Miller versus Alabama, Supreme Court held under our Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment to send a juvenile to prison for life without certain findings. So you, there are circumstances where juveniles, and in Michigan that's anyone 16 or, or younger, there are circumstances where juveniles can go to jail for life without parole, mandatory, um, but it, uh, not mandatory, life without parole, but it can't be mandatory. A judge has to have some discretion. Gotcha. So that's where this case is going to lie. And that is where there'll be overlap too with the parents, right, is Ethan's Mitigation, I would imagine, would be uh, the neglect of his parents and, um, you know, his 15-year-old adolescent brain, right, and the science of that and knowing right from wrong and what happened to him will also be explored by by experts and, and folks in court to determine whether or not he should do life without parole. I mean, that we could, there's going to be a lot of procedural, um, uh, litigation and, of course, you know, the due process respected, his rights respected. There could be a theoretical trial. Um, but at the end of the day, to the initial question you asked, what's this about? This is about is it life without parole, uh, w- without parole period, or is there possibility of parole? I read something today that I, mean, I read it like an hour ago, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure this person was wrong. It's the danger of Internet comment guy. <laughs> but it's been a while since <laughs> I was in law school. So yeah, help me out. Someone said... They put the terrorism charge on there to open up the possibility of federal uh, penalties and capital punishment and put them to death. I don't think that's what's happening here. The, this internet comic guy is wrong, right? Well, the death, the death penalty for juveniles is unconstitutional. So yeah. um, you know, that that uh, decided – I'm trying to remember the case in 2010. Um, so, so that won't occur. But federal charges are, are always possible if there's a federal hook. Um, we saw in the recent case uh, of the McMichael family and Ahmaud Arbery case that they're uh, facing state charges and were convicted now facing federal charges. So they're always possible. But you don't need a, a state terrorism charge to induce the feds to act. If the feds have a hook, which they often do have jurisdiction just because federal jurisdiction is kind of easy to get nowadays, um, 
uh, that is not the purpose of the terrorism charge. Uh, I think uh, Karen McDonald was trying to be very thoughtful about what charges to bring, and I think she thought, and I know the players in this case, but I'm not speaking for them. I don't know anything more than Joe Public other than my own uh, expertise in you know, guessing with that expertise. So when I say this, I'm not saying that's her reason, but my my gut reading between the lines is uh, that that charge reflects, you know, the reality of what happened, the community terrorized. Uh, so I think that count has uh, has that um, might have that purpose to it, among other things. There, there was a perception when that first came out that she was using that as for lack of a better term, make an example of him. I mean, do you think there's any element of that? Because I don't know what the statute really says for terrorism. I don't know. It's not It's not how we understand it in in like a colloquial sense. Like, you know, I, I don't know if folks might think when they hear the word terrorism, you think of foreign terrorists or some foreign bad actor. Yeah. Um, and then there's always the political debate of what are we labeling with the word terrorism, January 6th and, and, and such in those debates. But as a legal matter, uh, the, the terrorist portion, so to speak, of this charge, the terrorism, uh, talks about um, a group of people, right? A it can be a community. It can be the school. It can be a class. It's not defined in the traditional sense of how we think of terrorism, so to speak. And I think the prosecutor thought that probably reflected that this is more than just a murder. I mean, this was a uh, an offense on a community. This was a crime against a tight-knit community in Oxford. Uh, that, that's kind of the reading between the lines what I took from bringing that count because it doesn't not necessarily necessary um, for for to get life to get a conviction but I think there's a purpose to it and to me it seems like this reflects what happened uh, our community was terrorized I mean it's so I agree it, it seems to be a clear mitigation case nobody thinks this is going to be acquittal or right. he's out in five years do you think it actually gets to trial, do you do you think? I mean, do you suspect the prosecutor's office has an appetite to sit down with his court-appointed counsel and say, "Hey, let's bang out a deal for you plead guilty, we'll avoid all the hubbub, and maybe you can get out in twenty-five years." You know, be up before a parole board. Anything is theoretically possible, and um, again, you know, not knowing. Uh, what the the appetite is here of the prosecutor's office to have a very public trial or not. This is just supposition. But what is possible? What is possible is, you know, the prosecutor could make a deal, um, you know, for some sort of term of years or where somebody becomes eligible parole in, in his 60s or to be reviewed by the parole board. Now, Karen McDonald ran on a very progressive uh, platform when she ran for office and she beat the incumbent, Jessica Cooper, another Democrat. She ran far to the left of Jessica Cooper um, and uh, and won and convincingly won. And, you know, that is something I don't envy for Prosecutor McDonald, because I think as a general principle, she doesn't probably believe that most adolescents or juveniles should earn a mandatory sentence, that they're permanently incorrigible is the term that the Supreme Court uses, that they're redeemable, that their brains aren't fully developed to their mid-20s. I think those are probably her core beliefs. And I absolutely believe she's a good person. But you're also balancing that against a pretty particularly unique and heinous act, right? And if if something's permanently incorrigible, that's again a legal phrase, is this? I mean, does this demonstrate it? This is it's pretty heinous. So that is a tough decision. The prize, but the answer to your question is yes, theoretically, prosecutor can make any deal they want. We don't need to put the victims through this. We don't need a full blown trial. We're gonna have the parents trial, it seems. So 
you know, we can do a term of 30, 40 years, and then he can be eligible for parole. Or or the defense counsel could, if that wasn't prosecutor's appetite, and they're saying, no, we're, we're not agreeing to that. We think he should be in jail for the rest of his life. Then the parties could theoretically agree to go right to a sentencing hearing where a judge decides whether this uh, young man is uh, permanently incorrigible or not. Um, this is uh, not a law school class, so maybe I don't have to hedge, but it's the lawyer in me. There's a question as to whether permanent incorrigibility still has to be found, but that is the standard that we have been using in the profession as to whether or not a juvenile should get life in prison. That's why I keep repeating. Well, that yeah, nothing's nothing. Look, I mean, for the people that don't know, nothing at the law, weird, like people that are clearly guilty, like they did it. Like right. They on video. Walk. And, yeah, yeah. Walk sometimes. It happens and goes the other way. So I, nobody knows like where anything's going for sure. Everything we're doing is just kind of what we think, what we're, especially you. I mean, it's, well, it's, I mean, I'm a layman talking. There's but. value. There's value in, you, you know, you, you hesitated earlier. Well, I admit, hesitate's the wrong word, but you looked at me when you said the word allegedly. And understandably, right? Because this is on video. We know who it was. And, yeah. and that's, but I, there's a, I think there's a good practice. It is a good um, civic understanding that we should all have as to why that is, why we use that term, no matter how guilty a person is. Because if the system's there for Ethan Crumley, the worst of actors, right? Um, and I say that, uh, to, committed the worst of crimes, I should say. Um, if the system is there for him and he gets all of his rights protected, he gets the cloak of the presumption of innocence, he gets a trial if he, if he wants one, if we protect his rights vigorously, we, and as a society we say allegedly, it's going to be there for the person who really is innocent, those protections. So I think it is good practice to understand I'm these things, you. to go through these things, and, and that's kind of the answer to the question a lot of people ask of how criminal defense lawyers defend some people, but that's the crux of it. Even Ethan Crumbly, uh, we need to be really vigilant about protecting that thing because if we throw some people away, it becomes really easy to start chipping away at how uh, how much evidence we make the, the prosecutor show before we throw them away. That's a great point, and the line does move. And I want to deep, uh, dig a little bit deeper into that later, like the defense attorney sure. as a general matter. As far as this case goes— I, look, hey, call me crazy. I think he has a couple things going for him in terms of eventually having a chance to get out. We all know he's going to prison. But as far as that possibility of parole tag on there, maybe I'm nuts. But 15 years old, you look at other cases, uh, Sandy Hook, I mean, he killed himself. There was no trial. But had he gone to trial, he was uh, – Adam Lanz, I think, was 20. I mean, he was an adult for sure. Right. Uh, Columbine, same thing, no trial, killed himself. But had it gone – uh, Dylan Klebold was 17. Eric Harris was 18. So they were a few years older, one illegal adult. Uh, Nicholas Cruz down in Florida did not kill himself, uh, went to trial, found guilty. He was 19 or 20. So this is a little bit, I'm sorry, but 15 to me versus 18, 19, 20 is a big difference. The other thing is, yes, Nicholas Cruz, he had an adoptive mother. She died tragically, but by all accounts, it's pretty good. The uh, foster parents or whatever were nice. By all accounts, Eric Harris' dad was a military guy out in Columbine, but they had a good, strong family. The Klebolds, the mom is like uh, June Cleaver. I mean, she's like the nicest lady ever. Came from a great family, supportive family, parents together, family unit. Like, Crumbly's not only young, but the shit that his life has been surrounded by, by all accounts, people calling Adult protect, uh, Child Protective Services a few years ago saying they're just leaving this kid here. He's wandering around the streets at like eight years old. I think he has, as far as a school shooter goes, 
alleged school shooter goes. <laughs> he has probably the best defense I've seen of one of the major cases. Am I crazy to think best that? Best mitigation defenses, yeah. Right. I, I think absolutely if all this is true, um, what, what we have learned so far, that these you know parents left him at home without a phone or food, that he would go to the neighbors to use the phone, um, that he would be left in, in bad conditions at the house, that he was neglected, he's lonely, um, and that they ignored the warning signs. If those things are true, and we know the science is you know, uh, pretty clear that the adolescent brain is not fully developed in terms of being able to form the most rational thoughts and determining things that are, are reasonable and rational decisions, not being hasty and not being um, impulsive. impulsive. Thank yeah. you. That's yeah. the word I'm looking for. Till 26, 27, because we know those things about the science. I think as far as these things go, these are the factors that you look at. And that, that's truthfully, I, you know, I, this is not me unintentionally or intentionally putting pressure on Karen McDonald, but it starts with her in reviewing those facts and circumstances and what she thinks is justice. And then it becomes incumbent upon the defense lawyer to make that case to a judge and, and so on and so forth. But your, your point is a good one, that as far as these cases go, these are the mitigating factors that the Supreme Court envisioned when you talk about mandatory sentences for juveniles. Um, this is a 15-year-old kid, and this is a heinous act and monstrous and someone capable of doing that. You question whether that's rehabilitatable, if you can, that can be rehabilitated, right? Uh, you question whether that person is worthy of ever being in society again. I, that's all reasonable too. I can see that side of it too if I was wearing a black robe or if I was a prosecutor. Um, but as far as the flip side of that, do we as a society, do we just do we throw away kids um, without any consideration for it? And we've decided we're not. So as these facts come out and we hear these things, I think then only then is it appropriate to pass judgment on what the appropriate punishment is. We all know it's horrible and we all know that he's going away and for a while and that they shouldn't be released until there's some confidence that he's, uh, you know, not that person, uh, if ever. But yeah, let yeah. those facts come out. So I agree with you. The the things, if true, if proven through the right steps, those are the factors that lead to um, some kind of mitigating sentence. I mean, I've done an appalling amount of reading. I mentioned it in passing the great Dave Cullen book. Uh, Dave Cullen book. Yeah. It's literally just called Columbine. It's a great book. If you yeah, highly recommend it. He dives deep into. I mean, he's he's got their journals. He's breaking it down. The excerpts of it. He interviewed. Everybody, all the friends, principals, teachers there, it's the most thorough examination of that case. And the big thing that was undisputed in the family, friendship circle, especially with Dylan Klebold, but both of them, nobody saw that coming. Nobody. And nobody had a how could you not see that coming. Now, that's what we said when we saw the report. How could you not know? But there was, right. there was no if, – if the kid isn't uh, – I mean, they got in trouble for – they like knocked over a mailbox and shit. But I was doing stuff like that in high school. I didn't do the mailbox thing. But I was doing like stupid shit in high school too. Like that's Do we not, have an extra hour to talk about? Yeah, no, we're not gonna get into that. <laughs> but that's not like, oh, I'm gonna shoot up the school. That's like I understand. I, I knew fifty kids that did something in that box. Like sure. I, I've represented clients who have done things that uh dumb you know, shit. Dumb stuff that then, you know, they get accused of being this crazy person and because you overcompensate the other way. Right. So so I, your point's taken. I, I just In this case, though, it's such a big difference because this is not a case where 
I, look, everyone wanted to yell at the, the Columbine parents, but they didn't know the facts. And the facts are there was nothing there, nothing. There's not one scintilla, sh- one shred of evidence that, oh, how could you not know he did X, Y, Z? Of course he was going to be violent. Right. None for either of them. So in this case, and I think the public's reaction, I think the prosecution's office, their reaction yeah. is reflective of this. Look. Ethan Crumbly, an alleged school shooter. Let's say he did it, okay, supposedly. Let's say he did. We all agree that he did. We understand that. The appetite for him uh, to be a head on a stake is relatively low for what he did compared to other shooters. Everyone is foaming at the mouth at the parents. They're a lot more mad at the parents. It's so, you know, it's... The fact that you raise that—that's the vibe I'm getting too. Just talking to people about this, and um, I, I'm very complimented that people ask me to comment on the case, uh, uh, various outlets. So I ask other prosecutors and parents, and just get a vibe. That's the vibe I get. Um, it, it actually it, expanding this to to why it matters more broadly. Uh, it, it it makes me uh, uh, happy the people's capacity. To, to sympathize with with you know even someone who's done something monstrous, right? Their ability to to recognize that there are things um, that we could never understand uh, about maybe his circumstances or you know another person's circumstances. So the fact that people are uh, amenable to that even among such a tragedy and people from Oxford too, um, I think is uh, says a lot of good about humanity and our capacity to to for redemption now uh, again a lot of these facts have to be borne out um you know about was he neglected is he you know is is this truly uh, a kid who just had no chance or is he just an absolute monster i mean that just can't be um is not redeemable but i agree with you that the general temperature as compared to other cases for him uh is quite different yeah as a relative term it's a lot lower and, I mean, the parents here, what we believe, unless the prosecutor's uh, falsifying evidence, what appears to be in evidence or will be coming into evidence as part of the discovery as we know it, is uh, pretty galling, where uh, the kid is telling them he's seen demons and ghosts in the hallways and he's terrified. We all know uh, the, the account of the school and we've seen the evidence of the paper he wrote in school or the, the drawings. This was right under their nose. If this kid had bad parents, like... When we say they, we're talking about his parents, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if Ethan Crumbly had uh, D-plus parents, <laughs> like, I don't know how many people you know, maybe you know someone with uh, treacherous parents, but I don't know anybody. Like, though I, I have one in mind. I won't say them. But one of my friends has just terrible parents. Right? They're huge assholes. But if, if Ethan Crumbly had them versus his parents... He's never shooting up that school. There were, uh, allegedly, there were a hundred reasons why, even if he didn't think he was going to shoot up the school, which that's fine. You can argue that. But there's no excuse to not know he was having fucked up thoughts. The guy's right. seeing demons in the hallway. He's telling you. This isn't Nicholas Cruz after he's arrested, who has never told anybody contemporaneously ever that he hears voices. But the second he's on the ground in Florida, getting right. the cuffs on. Oh, demons' voices. This isn't that. They have contemporaneous accounts. They have, they have, they have it in print. They have it right in on front paper. of them. On paper. They have the proof. This kid had no reason to make it up. And obviously, whether he was actually seeing demons or not, he was having some kind of manifestation of a mental issue. 
if he had just bad parents, this doesn't happen. And I think that's what pisses me off. It's like, Crumboys, we don't need you to be uh, parents of the year. We don't need you to even be responsible. Just don't be historically irresponsible to a degree. It's almost satanic, allegedly. I, 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 that's, that's my read on it is that this is, again, the most avoidable thing ever. And I think whatever you may think, and I wanna, we're going to transition to the crumbies now, I think that may actually be an issue for them to get a fair trial because the venom that I'm sensing is so high, including to myself. I'm, I'm to the point where I'm the ultimate. Everyone gets a fair trial. And even <laughs> I'm like, fuck those guys. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm curious. So let's transition to them. They've gotten the vast majority well, of the you day. have a, a good out if you get a jury subpoena now or a jury summons. Oh, I got it on yeah. tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, don't put me on that. Job. I, just fucking, you know, I don't even need to see the discovery. I had no evidence at all. So I, I think a big part of this, I think you, you agree they're getting most of the heat here. A big part of this is not just for what led up to and what is alleged to have caused or led to it to become possible for the shooting to occur. It's the aftermath and how they've handled it. The allegedly trying to flee, emptying their son's bank account, $3,000 taken out. They took him down to 99 cents. Hiding out in Detroit in a loft, the art gallery, all the stuff that is being thrown out there by the prosecutor's office. To me, we can kill somebody for hindsight all we want. And Fairly. I mean, fairly. I, I don't think it's Captain Hindsight to say you probably should have called someone when the guy's seen ghosts in the hallway. <laughs> but it's particularly egregious that after these kids are dead, these kids were, were shot by your son. Their attitude, even now, is, uh, why are we in prison? Like, we didn't, do no, we didn't do anything wrong. Now, I'm not saying don't defend yourselves, plead guilty. Sure. I'm talking about their affect, their face, what they're doing. Their charges are four counts of... Uh, Manslaughter, right? It's it's uh, involuntary Correct. manslaughter. So a little bit uh, less of a long sheet there than what their son is facing. But the prosecutor's office is holding them accountable here, blaming them for not averting the outcome. They are acting disgusted that they're being scrutinized like this, like, they, like they're being prevented from uh, attending some hockey game they want to go to. It's, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Uh, you know, what, what's your take on this? Like, I think we can all agree if they did or didn't do what they're alleged to have done and not done, that they suck and they're bad and they're morally responsible to some degree. I'm curious about the legal perspective here. Is this a prosecutor's office responding to a furious community, uh, partially entirely? Or is there real meat on the bone, as you said, to the charges? Because this is where it gets interesting. Ethan, a little more clear cut. It's mitigation. This, a little murkier. Is that fair? It's it's more than fair, and it's it's the source of tremendous uh, um, conflict in my own mind because uh, I share the same horror when I look at the facts, if proven. Uh, to be true. Well, the ones we've just know, (laughs) even alone, uh, bother me tremendously. And it it really, you know, uh, let me start with this before I get into the legal issue, I think uh, is absolutely the central question here as to whether or not they'll be held accountable. But let's just talk about their credibility to date uh, and and how this has gone so far. Um, You have a situation where you, no charges are coming and Allegedly, your attorney tells law enforcement and prosecutor that they're going to turn themselves in, which is very common. And uh, I 
do it quite often myself for stuff ranging from small, petty crime to, to major crime. And they do all these things you mentioned, take cash out. They had four cell phones, two of which no one had the numbers to. They were, they were crouching when they were found. It's not like they were just, you know, hanging out till morning there and hid their license plate from view, um, drained the bank accounts, put the house up for sale, sold their horses and other connections they had to the state. All these things that make it so obvious of what, what's going on here. And instead of owning that and saying we panicked and, you know, and I've had that. I, I was telling uh, someone the other day, I had a client uh, in a federal case that was apprehended hiding under his car. And I had to try to get him a bond. He panicked. He had a nine-month-old child at home. He was about to be arrested in front of her. And he panicked. He absolutely panicked. He apologized. He cried. And it was credible. And it, was tr- and it, was, it had the benefit of being true, Justin. And he, was, he was panicked. He got a bond. And everything went fine. Case resolved. He never ran. Or That's having credibility and being forthright with the court and, and your lawyer working with you. I'm not patting myself on the back. Just give me an example. Instead, they, they blame the prosecutor and say that's not true. <laughs> They were, they were coming in the morning. I, I hate to be critical of other lawyers. I really do. But your credibility is everything, and especially in a case like this where you have an uphill battle in terms of the you know, public perception, to maintain that they were not fleeing in text messages to the court on television to drag the prosecutor as somehow it's her fault uh, that they, were, that they were, had four cell phones and were crouching somewhere in an abandoned warehouse in Detroit. I mean... So you start with that. That didn't help your perception. And then you sit in these court hearings and, and again, with another opportunity to say we panicked and were hated and were looked at as monsters and we deserve our day in court, but we were scared, which I think people may have capacity to understand if that's how you approach it. Instead of doing that, they're shaking their head in court at everything that's being said. They're recalcitrant on all these things. So you're doing yourself no favors on all of this perception. Um and, and now you're entering the phase where you have to defend yourself. I just don't think that's a good setup, a good start. Uh, not that you should accept incarceration or you know, not ask for a lower bond. Not that they shouldn't defend themselves. I, just, I think that's important context for how this case has gone. I don't know if I'm the only one that feels that way, but it, it's extraordinary to me that that was the position that was taken. Um, and I think Karen McDonald, prosecutor's office, done a heck of a job uh, navigating that. So now you get to the case, and that was your original question of, of uh, uh, the legal case against them. This is a really, really hard case to prove, just being frank. And uh, we can talk about change of venue and jury issues and a lot of things. There's a lot of interesting parts. But let's just write to the core of why this case is so difficult. So far, and this, this is, I, I think this has to happen eventually. So far, all the talk has been about what was their acts of negligence. Okay, that I guess I should even be more elementary just because I think there's value in people understanding this. In a criminal case, in any criminal case, a prosecutor, there would be something that's illegal by statute, by common law, whatever the crime is. A prosecutor has to prove elements of a crime. So and so did this, it caused this, this person died. I mean, there's one, two, three, four elements. This person was driving on, on a public highway, was intoxicated 0.08 or higher in a DUI, right? Elements of a case. Here, there's two elements that matter. Gross negligence acts, gross negligent actions. Gross negligence means, you know, uh, beyond just ordinary failings, right? Just willful disregard for other people's safety. 
That's number one. And number two is that gross negligence has to have caused the harm that you're alleging. Those are the two things in play. So far, all everybody's talked about is gross negligence. And I don't know why. Because I don't think any juror, any reasonable jurist or juror, is ever going to find that these actions weren't grossly negligent in some capacity. Ignoring the warning signs that you talked about, a literal dead body on the page, a piece of paper with blood coming out of it and the gun that he had just been uh, bragging about on Instagram that your producer had up on there, right in front of them, being asked to take him home from school. Of course, these facts have to come out as true, so I should be the, pre uh, what I'm preaching I should be doing, allegedly, if these things happen to be true. You know, making the gun accessible, by calling it his gun. All of these actions, I don't see how any reasonable person doesn't call them grossly negligent. And is below the standard of care that we expect out of parents, right, to protect their children and others by taking reasonable measures. But that's what the focus has been and what the, his lawyers have talked about and on news media talked about, you know, well, there's no law on locking up guns or, you know, should they have done this? But, Justin, the real question is those actions – did they cause what happened? And the question for that is, causation, was it a natural and necessary consequence of the negligence? Was the Crumleys not keeping the gun, uh, you know, in a, in a good place or not taking him home that day, was it reasonably foreseeable and was it necessary consequence of that action? That's very hard to prove if you think about it because it is such an unbelievable, hard-to-comprehend act. And I know there's arguments other the way. I'm just trying to give people a sense of why this is hard. This guy, this kid, went and shot and murdered four children and injured, you know, seven, seven more yeah. uh, in, a, in a school shooting. That is very hard to foresee, no matter what you do, right? No matter how troubled your kid might be. And I started to say earlier, I've had clients who did a... Um, who did a, uh, there was a dance associated with that game that all the kids are playing. I feel like an old man now. Fortnite. Some, oh, yeah. some dance you could buy. And this kid was doing the dance. It was called the shoot 'em up dance or something like that. It was associated with the game. He was, they were threatening to charge him with terrorist charge, terrorism in a school charge. That's the other side of this, right? Is, uh, does that dance from a uh, video game necessarily mean that he's going to be a killer in school? No, it was ridiculous, I thought. And and because I thought that, that's why I'm saying this is so hard to prove. It's so hard to predict this and view even negligent behavior as leading to the death of four children. Um, there's something in the law called a um, intervening action. So if you're, you know, chasing someone down the street and they trip and fall and break their leg, you chasing them down the street, it's pretty reasonably foreseeable they might hurt themselves, right? But if you're chasing them down the street and a tree falls on them, I don't know if you can say that that's reasonably foreseeable that the tree was going to fall on just because you were chasing him. There's an intervening cause, the tree. The intervening cause here is is Ethan Crumbly being, you know, doing something monstrous that is hard to foresee no matter how bad of a parent you may have been. So that was a long way of stating. The big problem that I see, or difficulty, I should say, not problem, because I think it's a just prosecution. I don't think there's anything... Uh, unethical about the charges. But I think the uphill battle for prosecutors is not that they acted negligently. They absolutely acted negligently. I don't see one reasonable juror concluding that these parents weren't negligent. The question is, did those negligent acts, whatever they were, however numerous, can you say that those caused the death of 
Tate, Madison, Hannah, and Justin. Can you say that? And I don't know what a jury will is, do with that. Now, let me ask you a question on nuance, because I honestly don't know the answer. If you believe as the juror that their gross negligence clearly allowed it to happen, allowed is a little different from cause. Correct. Is allowed satisfy the statute? That's the hard part. When the jury is instructed, they're going to be told that causation means that the necessary thing to have, I'm using more colloquial terms, but what had to happen, you know, what was reasonably foreseeable and necessary consequence of that action was the murder of four children. Now, if I And be, I can't necessarily say that not locking up a gun and not taking the kid home from school necessarily leads to the consequence of four children being murdered. I don't know if I can get there. I'm not saying I couldn't if I was a juror. I would certainly listen to the evidence, but I, I want people to at least think about it. Maybe maybe you're thinking, Wade, you're out to lunch. I would convict in a heartbeat, and that's why we have a jury system. But as I'm analyzing it, that's what I see as the most problematic element or the biggest uphill battle for prosecutors is proving that all the terrible things the Crumleys did that we keep talking about, whether they were terrible or not, did those cause death. Yeah. And all the terrible things that we understand them to have done, like you said, only get you halfway home. Exactly. What we know and what we're mad about, we're only halfway there. Rightfully so. And you don't get half, you don't get half convicted. But think about that. That's where all the anger is directed, right? And actually, uh, Jennifer Crumley and James Crumley's lawyers in their motion to reduce bond cited the gross negligence instruction. Again, I don't understand it. I don't think this is the debate about being grossly negligent. If those facts can be proven, prosecutor has to prove them. Maybe there's something we don't know. Uh, discovery looks pretty compelling. Well, well how do, we don't know yet, Justin, yeah. if that meeting you, you happened. You, you can couch it all you want. The discovery that's out there is pretty compelling. No, what I'm saying is we don't know how that meeting happened at the school. Maybe it was, something different was said. Maybe it was, maybe they never were shown the picture. I mean, we got to give the benefit of the doubt to that evidence actually being true. I'm only operating on the f believing this evidence to be true so that we can have a discussion about it. But of course, I mean, if they're, uh, maybe I'm being too critical of the lawyers because maybe they know something I don't. Maybe that meeting didn't take place the way they said it did. Maybe there was an off-the-cuff comment outside the office about this and they said, oh, okay, I'll come back and get them in a few hours. How do we know? I mean, maybe there is another witness that says something different. So I, I should qualify that as I'm being critical on other lawyers. It's just tough to do because I don't know all the facts. But I, I, I cannot, if true or if difficult to prove, you know, disprove uh, based on what you know about the witnesses, to me it seems this case is a causation case. Was it foreseeable? Was it a necessary consequence? If it weren't for the alleged meeting with the note, with the gun, with the blood drawn on the school floor, I'm with you. The, the ghost shit. That, right. I'm with you the whole way. They probably, but if you start chipping away at that, then you do start questioning whether it was gross negligence. You know, what if there's a, a witness to that meeting? Me, I'm, just, I'm making this up completely. Yeah. There's a third-party witness that says, I don't remember them ever mentioning the note. Well, that changes a lot, what, what the parents knew and that. So there's things that you can do on cross-examination and in your own investigation that may chip away at some of these things. So we have to reserve the possibility of that. But 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 go, but you were saying uh, uh, before I interrupted you, forgive me. But was that uh, if you get there with the gross negligence, the question is, and I'm curious for what you would think as a juror, can you get that causation? Let's call it the causation bridge to the to the result, right? Can you bridge the act with the result with causation? To me, this entire thing on that second element 
rests on that meeting in that school. Yes. I am not going to, as a juror, convict them of how could you not know he was going to shoot up the school because he was seeing ghosts in the hallway. And uh, right. I, I didn't say what kind of an animal. I don't even know if the bird head. Well, the bird head, yeah, but there was something. They got him on video supposedly torturing animals. I don't even think the prosecutor said that the parents, they know or have proof that the parents were aware of that. But I, I can't get there to what we supposedly know. I can't make the leap of you were negligent, you left your son so you could go out and drink even though he was saying he was seeing ghosts in the hallway. Right. I can't make that leap of, of course, he was going to shoot up the school. Where I'm willing to, to bend, again, we're both going to couch everything we say for two hours. That's fine. But like, <laughs> well, you're a lawyer too. Bar, well, I, I went to law school and graduated, but I don't know. Makes you a lawyer. Yeah, doesn't make no. you a licensed attorney. Well, but right, a yeah. I don't know. Is that how it works? <laughs> um, no, but I, I'm deferring to the, the expert on, yeah. on here. But just if I'm the juror, yeah. I'm not an attorney. I'm just the juror. Yeah. Like if I if I have uh, enough in front of me, the witness testimony, there's nothing to dissuade me from believing it. If I have proof in my mind that – the meeting did take place as we understand it to have taken place, that they were shown this picture with a gun and, oh, the, the pain won't stop and blood on the ground. Then you know he has, whether or not you really thought he had access to a gun, you know that he's aware of a, a gun. You can say, oh, I thought I had it up, I secured properly. You obviously didn't because it happened. He got it, right. Like Proof's in the pudding on that one. Yeah, yeah. Like he got it. So – this whole like, oh, it was locked up. He, they even talked about it. I better hide it really well. It's like yeah. he got it, so I don't care. Like you didn't do a good enough job by default. Then I'm willing to convict. But if there's some murkiness about what took place in that, there's no tape, there's no uh, third-party witness, then – because remember, you got to remember the criminal standard. You know, but the audience, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And if there's any doubt about that meeting, then that's a tougher leap to make. And well, even the people that are going to testify to that meeting that we you know, presumably the whoever the school officers that were there, the you know, we got you don't know how that's going to come out on on direct exam or cross examination. Bad memories, things that are inconsistent, and all of a sudden you're questioning, man, did that meeting really go the way this was presented to us? Those things happen in trial, so people should, um, in fairness to any criminal defendant, no matter how much we might dislike them, and the and I trust me. I know enough about – that's why I started my talk with what I thought about the way the, the fleeing went and the way they've acted since. I know enough to know that I'm, I'm not a huge fan of theirs, right? But I will reserve judgment on criminality because we, you do have to give the criminal defendant the benefit of the doubt because it's very easy. And I like Karen McDonald so that it's not really uh, talking about her but just as a general matter. It is very easy for prosecutors to make allegations. This is what the evidence is going to show. This is what we have. It's a whole different story when you try to prove that in court, right? Because you're relying on just human beings and uh, people to tell their story. So we'll see how the evidence comes out. But I agree with you that if it is as sold to us, right, or, or what we're told and what we've seen, uh, it is pretty damningly horrific parenting that put people at risk. Is it foreseeable that someone is going to be shot and killed? Is that an intervening event? Is that a necessary consequence? I'm having a hard time. Uh, it's I, not I, clear. And this is coming from someone that hates their guts. Like, <laughs> I, I, I believe me, I, people out there watching that are just like, oh, burn. Well, now there's the, video. You'd be a good juror in this case. So we can't yeah, have you. Yeah, I can't can have you in Ethan, but we can have you in the parents. <laughs> yeah, I just qualify myself. I requalify. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I want to be like a, a Trojan horse, get in there and just hang them. Um, you know, but I, I look, 
it's not the perception is, oh, of course they're guilty. They're they're right. going down, and this is not the first time this has happened. I, I'm not gonna to spoil the speed round too much. Sure. I'm I'm dabbling in the Rittenhouse for 25 seconds later, yeah. but like the perception is, of course right. Rittenhouse is going down. Right. It's like. No, he's not. It would actually be very surprising to me if he did go down. I, I That's had a great example. I had friends saying like, "I what an ass, crazy asshole I was." I'm like, "Just wait, he's gonna walk, and he should walk." But we'll get to that later. Yeah, this is not. This is at best what fifty fifty maybe. I mean, this is hard not to a, put percentages, but it is a very difficult case. And I let's let's say this too because I think this is also part of your original question. Um, it is it is a, it was a courageous thing for Karen McDonald to do. Uh, to, to, because there's a lot of interests that probably, um, don't love it. Right. That, uh, kind of has tinge of gun owners, right. And what's responsible and irresponsible gun ownership and being held to account for it. There's, there's, you know, it's kind of has that element to it. Um, but when a prosecutor brings a charge and, and I want to delineate or, uh, separate this from, a prosecutor brings a charge that they know they can't prove or don't believe in, because I don't think that's what happened here. Um, and there are prosecutors who do that, and that's one of the reasons I'm a criminal defense lawyer. But I think there's courage in Karen McDonald bringing a case she believes in, and I, I think there is an absolute theoret enough of a theoretical basis that you could prove this beyond a reasonable doubt to, to bring it, at least bring it to trial. Um, prosecutors don't like to lose, and a case like this would be tough to lose. So I think there's a lot of courage bringing this case because it was, I think she believed it was the right thing. That's nice to have. Someone will risk a, a loss or, you know, she'd have to take the blame for it, excuse me, um, for something that she truly believed was the right call. Uh, so I, I do want to credit, credit her. And it's, it's funny because I was on the other side of her in the campaign and, uh, I was, you know, Jessica Cooper and I have been friends for a long time and, and she lost and we've since, you know, been friendly and she has done what she said she's going to do so far. Well, she's she, got to work on her communication or vice versa with the Oakland County Sheriff's Office because that's a problem. That, that was an embarrassing 72 hours the week that the parents were hauled in where they're, I'm not going to break down everything, but it's like uh, the prosecutor's office is telling the media one thing and they're going to the sheriff's office and Bouchard and his, uh, uh, what is it, undersheriff. Right. And, and they're saying, oh, this is what McDonald said. And, and Bouchard's like, well, what? I don't know anything about that. It's like I, wherever the breakdown was, I'm not blaming one or the other. Right. But someone didn't get some kind of a message. Those two sides were bickering for like three days. I, that, it's a horrible Optic, I think. Was that, I mean, that, well, let me take out my note card. I have great respect for Sheriff Bouchard <laughs> and Karen McDonald, and no further comment. I'm just, I, actually, <laughs> I'm I, love, I love yeah. Bouchard, yeah. and I don't know really anything about McDonald. I, like I said, I'm not pinning it on I'm either one, right? But it's like, can your offices get your shit together? That was an embarrassment. No, that, that, that was problematic, and I, I think they both acknowledged it, and the temperature's gone down, and they've kind of, you know, been on the same page since because at the end of the day, this is about. Uh, protecting the community and and being the advocate for the families in Oxford, um, but yeah, I mean that there that there was some miscues there, I don't, and I think they'd be the first to admit it. But they're both, um, you know, good public servants. Sheriff Bouchard's been there a long time, always been fair with me and my clients, and and Karen is proving herself. Prosecutor McDonald, I shouldn't be so casual, um, is proving herself to do to be exactly what she said she was, which is, you know, a person who's gonna consider criminal justice reform and, th and think about the way things have been done for a long time. This put her in a, this puts her in a tough spot and I don't envy it because she has core beliefs, but you're also dealing with a tragedy. Like we talked about on Ethan, she's going to have to make a call on life 
And on these parents, you're bringing a charge that's going to really be a battle. It's not. I mean, you you mentioned the courage uh, sort of rooted in going into those 2A waters, the Second Amendment waters. That was a thing for like a day. That has not been anything I'm hearing online, water cooler now. Normally right, it is. Right. This is a unified community. Sure is. Burn them all. Like, to me, I, I don't know like, who is the pro crumbly. I mean, the attorneys that have to be measured like you, and that's you're supposed to be. Right. You know, the blind eyes. But like, uh, other than you guys, this is not a, oh, a, a gun issue. It was for a day or two. I heard it too. People thought it would be. That, at at, the, not, time she, been, at the time she made the decision, though, You're right. that's how it might have been viewed. Uh, but I agree with you. I mean, I think the facts are just so bad. Yeah. Uh, and the facts are, are uh, galvanizing in a way because we all believe that this was that they're it's almost as if uh, maybe I'm not passing judgment on whether it should be. But it's the perception certainly is that uh, they are the bigger wrongdoers in this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, here, here's the thing. Like you back to I'm putting my juror hat on. You know, if I'm sitting there and I, look, I told you what my basis is. It's going to come back to that meeting, barring something else we don't know. Like right. He had told us. Parents, I'm thinking of shooting the school next week or something. Of course. Something, barring something new. Uh, it comes down to that meeting. And if my decision as a juror comes down to, do I believe these people? Is it, it look at in the context of everything they've said and done, what we know they've said and done. Is it that crazy to think that they may have been told something fucked up and didn't give a shit and didn't react properly? Yes. Because we have a mountain of evidence that, of them Certainly. not reacting properly to all sorts of that, things that should have been disturbed. Again, that's why I think it's not irrelevant the way this has gone so far. Yeah. H- hiring, hiring Shannon Smith and Marielle Lehman, retained attorneys. Well, we don't know how much they paid or how much they had. So, you know, I guess I, I can't pass judgment on that. I don't know. but not providing their son with counsel, right? Yeah. Taking care of themselves, draining his bank account. Yep. I mean, this kid, thank God, um, he has Lofton. Lofton, uh, She's wonderful public defender. Isn't she a Bloomfield girl? Did I read that? I actually, I don't know her background. I think she's an Andover But she has a tremendous reputation uh, as a, a, uh, does a lot of appointed work and has just got a great reputation. I think he's in really good hands, thankfully. Because... I mean, we're talking about them as parents again. I mean, this the, their kid needs good representation on this mitigation issue. It's a complex area of the law. You're going to need experts to talk about, you know, the science of adolescent brains and decision making. You need to to try to salvage maybe 10, 20, 30 years of his life, right? You need good counsel. He's on his own. And, you know, we're going to take our money, our four cell phones, and... Well, I'll tell you what, the free attorney's doing a much better job than the paid ones, and we don't know what they're getting paid, but I got to tell you, look, we we don't know what all the evidence is. We don't know where this is going in court, not court, whatever. We don't know. No one knows. What I do know is the optics of what I'm seeing, and you mentioned it in passing. I asked Ben to pull a couple clips of it. The face, now for the audio listeners, you're screwed, sorry. Watch (laughs) this on YouTube. But uh, you can hear, but you you can't see. The facial expressions... First of all, we could have done a 37-minute tape of them making ridiculous faces. Right. We had to cut it down because no one wants 37 minutes of them watching ridiculous faces. But, Ben, if you can play that clip just to get a small sampling of uh, Jennifer and James Crumley acting a totally a fool during this hearing. Her husband instead. When she was informed that they tried to call her husband, but when he picked up, they only heard dead air. What's been admitted is Exhibit 1 and 2. And they're told that immediate therapy is needed. Immediate as in that day. 
They resisted, instead asserting that they couldn't possibly take him out of school because of work. As you have heard Prosecutor McDonald State Judge, drawn by Ethan, bore a striking resemblance to the gun they bought for him four days before. So for those that weren't watching, I mean, they're shaking their heads, rolling their eyes, uh, smiling, smiling, mouthing things, making a mockery of this thing. Now, jump in if I'm wrong. My understanding in the era of COVID is that there's no distinction. That Zoom is the courtroom in terms of etiquette and decorum. Is that correct? That's considered you're in the courtroom. Of course. Oh, you're right. asking what Zoom technology. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that, there's no that you distinction. You're considered to be in a courtroom. Right. As they if are, you're at table. Right. That, so don't get away from, oh, there's Zoom sitting in another room somewhere. Right. In the eyes of the system. And they're looking at the courtroom. The judge is in the yeah. courtroom. No, yeah, yeah. The judge is in the courtroom. Yeah. But yeah. like, there's just so don't let that, that, that is no different from them sitting at the desk in the courtroom itself and, and, and giggling and making right. ridiculous faces. Right. Look, the Crumblies, I think, are. Profound pieces of shit. I think that's obvious. I don't care what anybody says. The attorneys, I don't know. I don't know them. But either they didn't counsel their clients or they did and their clients are even dumber than we thought. Because how are you, you're a defense attorney. I'll throw it into your lap. If you have a client in this situation or any situation, you're on trial or you're at a hearing maybe to go to trial. Do you not sit them down and say, poker face, don't react, don't roll your eyes? Isn't there? Isn't that... A discussion at some point because apparently it didn't happen or didn't sink in. If it did, if it did, because I don't know what what's going on here. Yeah, I, the answer is yes. Let me put my attorney qualifiers on the beginning of the statement. I know Shannon, I know Marielle, and even if I am critical of them, I think they are extremely talented lawyers. Uh, they have had some tremendous successes. They had a federal case dismissed and a federal uh, female genital mutilation case where. Um, Muslim doctor was accused of FGM, and that was if on constitutional grounds and others they got it dismissed. They are talented lawyers. So I am, you know, a thousand feet removed from this case. I'm not in it. I don't know some of the things that they know. I'm not having the conversation. So if anything is viewed as criticism, it's not on uh, necessarily their skill. Uh, it's just, you know, how I view it and to benefit your audience, my thoughts on it. Um, so I, I did want to say that they are they are very skilled attorneys and um, you know, I've worked with them and I, and I, and I know them to be good at their craft. As far as your question as to preparing clients for that, uh, I would, sometimes clients don't listen. Um, I've certainly had it happen to me. What I prefer and often do in that situation, I'll actually stop the proceeding and, and admonish my client. Um, I think there's credibility in that because you can, uh, share why you're doing it, you know, uh, Mr. Crumley, stop, or, you know, so-and-so. Like in front of everybody. Oh yeah. yeah. I, stop. Yeah. I know you're upset. We'll talk about it. Um, but just just let them finish or let them do this. And you're kind of acknowledging it as opposed to letting it go on. And, and it maybe puts some human element on it because there's these things can be frustrating. I've heard prosecutors take liberties with the truth before. I'm not saying that happened here. Again, great prosecutors and no reason to believe that this is anything but the truth. Uh, but I've had other prosecutors who um, I don't have as much esteem for that have uh, – played loose and fast with some facts and that frustrates my clients and they'll shake their head or they'll say no. And if I'm physically with them, I'll, it'll be an elbow or a stop it. Um, if I'm not, if it's on zoom, sometimes I think it is worthwhile piping up and, and stopping it because then you can try to contextualize it. Like 
I know we disagree so and so, but let's just, you know, we'll talk about it after. So, yeah, I think there should have been counseling before. Perhaps stop it there because it's a bad look. And again, your credibility is everything. You're at a bond hearing asking for a reduction in bond, and this is how you're carrying yourself. I mean, how how can the court be expected uh, to have their, you know, when you when you're deciding a bond, you're deciding whether or not someone's going to show up to court and whether they're dangerous. I mean, if you can't control yourself and, you know, have some maturity uh, during the, the, the hearing, it doesn't really inspire confidence in you that this was just a one-off, you know, yeah. fleeing yeah. <laughs> situation. It, this, it speaks to yeah. the character. And, it, it, and it's it, hurting their credibility going yeah. forward at each right. level here. You're looking like the person that is doing what everything right. they're saying that you did. Right. You're just you're, – you, you are not taking this seriously. This is not a case of somebody stealing somebody's golf clubs. Right. Th- th- this is a hearing about the worst school shooting in the state of Michigan's history, I believe, right? This is four kids getting gunned down, seven kids uh, right. wounded, some very badly. This, this is not uh, a petty theft hearing. The, even if you disagree, and look, we're all human. Like, That's a great point. I, 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 we're all human. I, I get well, – I would even give them like if, if they thought something – was outlandish. I, I'd give him a, a weird face. You can't go on there for 26 consecutive minutes making a face every four seconds. That's not, oh, they're human, we're all human, we have human reactions, and then we bring it back in. This was like, they didn't give a fuck. They didn't care at all. It was, I mean, if you watch They're the making whole, themselves the aggrieved yeah, in this. Yeah, that's what as, I'm saying. Like, they, yeah. we're bo- like are, am I bothering you, yeah. Crumbly? Like, right. I'm sorry. I, am I putting you out by, by having you at this hearing now? Like, even if I think you're not guilty of the charges, the statute reads, particularly the second element of causality, I'm sorry. You're a piece of shit that's here and caused this, if not in a legal sense, uh, a moral sense. And like I said, a D plus set of parents doesn't have this result. So I, the flippancy, I just I, I you know them. I don't know how well you know them. If you had to guess, do you think they probably yeah. told told them not to do yeah. that because they do a shit job of listening? I, I'm I think it's the latter. I'm sh- I'm I'm would be very surprised if Shannon and Marielle, as talented uh, and experienced as they are, didn't counsel them on that. But I, I think you're getting a glimpse into probably who they are, right? Not they being the lawyers, they being the Crumleys, because uh, they I don't think they listen. Um, and look, let me acknowledge what a lot of my clients, you know, go through in different situations, and I certainly think I've defended a lot of innocent people. Um, they're incarcerated. They basically have no bond. You order five hundred thousand dollars for someone with no money. It's basically saying no bond. Um, that's hard. And you're cut off from the world and the news and, ne- and not, don't know necessarily everything that we know or how people feel about them. So uh, the best spin I can put on it to have at least some thought about why other people might do this in this situation, them I have a little less sympathy for because of the circumstances and everything that has led up to this. But uh, you can understand why a lot of people get frustrated uh, being incarcerated, being denied a bond. They're hearing things that they disagree with. I, I, it's not uncommon is what I'm saying. In this case, given the chain of events, got to lock it down and got to put, put your best face on it. You're, you're asking for something here that's very important, which is a bond uh, or an accomplishable bond. I think they asked for $100,000, yeah, which, which would be 10000 to a bondsman. If people don't know how bail bonds work, you pay them a 10% fee to post your bond if you don't have it. Um, and that's a big difference being out on bond rather than incarcerated before your trial. You can go to your attorney's office often to prepare. 
you know, you have access to things, uh, you know, and investigators, your experts, the discovery, your attorney's office, uh, just your own bed. I mean, the obvious too. But in preparing for your trial, huge difference for the attorneys and the uh, defendants in being out versus in. So I, I understand the frustration if you're, you know, someone trying to understand how this all works. We can understand the frustration. That's probably where it came from. But uh, I'm sure Shannon and Marielle counseled them. They're just not listening and going to need a little sharper words probably to understand. This ain't getting you anywhere. Well, anyway. in this case, this matters because exactly you said this it. case in particular. Exactly. I said I said fifty fifty, and I stand by that as as a layman uh, with who did go to school for this stuff, but doesn't work in it. You're accomplished. I know you don't want to give me the percentage, but what you did say was you didn't say, "Oh, I don't know." The defense has a great argument here. And you didn't say uh, it's a slam dunk the other way either. You agree there's, to whatever extent, some murkiness there. When there's murkiness about the statute, about the elements of the statute and the crime that's been alleged. Not elements about the statute. The, element, the murkiness as to whether or not a jury is going to find it's met. We know well, that's what I mean. Very clear that, law. That's yeah. what, no, no yeah. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the, the law on the book being Understood. murky. Gotcha. I'm talking about the facts. Do they align or not being sure. murky? When it comes to a situation like that, which we both agree they are, neither one of us thinks it's a slam dunk, whether you're 60-40 and I'm 50-50, we both agree it's closer to the middle than one way or the other. The credibility starts to really matter, and you have to navigate that murkiness a little bit better than they are. This has been a catastrophe. Absolutely It's been a total catastrophe, and I don't think these attorneys – I'm sure they did talk to them. I don't think the defense counsel lied when they went in front of the media and said, oh, they're turning themselves in. I'm sure that is what they they told their clients to do. I'm sure the client said, okay, and then just didn't listen. That's that's the Occam's razor explanation. I would really love to know how – they can uh, make that representation that they were still going to turn themselves in. I, they are. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really would love. There's something that we don't know because they're they're too smart and too talented to be making that representation if they don't know something we don't. It just, but the optics are bad. I, I would, I just like I gave you the example of, you know, there's a can be an alternative explanation and panic. Yeah, and, and that's okay. The civil trials in Columbine of the parents, the wrongful deaths, they they, they were not charged criminally. The civil trials, uh, there were, they were they were sued. I mean, the Klebolds. I don't know about the Harris's. The Klebolds were sued like seventy six times or something crazy. It was it was a ton of them. Uh, Sue Klebold's book is just heartbreaking, but talks about it in detail. But their approach, they defended themselves. They didn't just say, "Here's a check." Like they right. thought that, like, and they really didn't know. I, again, no evidence that they knew anything. Uh, but their whole approach was not defiant. We didn't know shit. Eye rolling. Every, anytime Sue and her her um, counsel would speak in front of the media, it was contrition. This is a horrible situation, but guys, we didn't have anything to do with it. We didn't know. We're as sad as you are. We lost our kid. They're not doing that. They're like, they're like screw you guys it's for in, even it's, asking. It's very indignant. Uh, and, you know, I, without um, trying to be too harsh because there's a small community here, uh, it's an interesting strategy. Get your but shit together. I, I just, I, I think... Being indignant and and trying to drag Karen McDonald and, you know, this approach, I don't know if that matches the tone of what's going on here or what any juror or circuit court judge is going to feel about this case. I think it's exactly what you just said. If it was me, and I've had media cases, uh, as you know, if it was me in this, in this temperature, in this vi- environment, and 
listen, I'm a true believer. I'd represent them. So this is, I don't begrudge anyone who would represent them. Um, but in this environment, it's exactly what you just described the Klebolds as. I mean, where is the sorrow? Where, where, where is in that? Because it's okay. It's okay to be really, really sad. And it's okay to blame yourself a little bit too. And, and to reflect on, on what you did wrong. Like all of that's okay. It doesn't make you necessarily criminally guilty. Show it. I mean, that, that really helps with credibility and bond and just, just everything uh, to do with this case. And I, and I so far don't get the strategy, but um, you know, they're playing into the narrative that the prosecutor has been telling, to be honest. I love it. I hope they keep screwing up. You know, don't interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. <laughs> and that's why I don't totally absolve. Look, I mean, the Crumbies are worse than their counsel. Like I said, I'm sure counsel did tell themselves to, uh, to tell them to turn themselves in. Uh, they're very good lawyers. Too. But, but the, I don't like how they're handling this either. They're very they're very defiant in these hearings. They're not rolling their eyes, but they have been defiant in tone. This is not a, a tone reflecting a measured response. There's to, a time for that, right? There's all there's great cases to do that. There's nobody in you, oh, yeah. and you've known me for a long time since I. You, there's nobody that likes pounding the table more than me, right? Like I, I love it, I enjoy it, and um, that's part of the competitive part of it. But it's a read the room situation, yeah. Uh, and there's a, there's good times for that when you have good facts and when there is you know this dynamic. Uh, I had a case that ended up getting reversed. Suwatu Ra, who it was gave birth in prison, she was wrongfully convicted. We reversed. That was a case where we were rightfully indignant. Right. And that's the and that was it was such an injustice here. There may there is a legal defense and there and, and it may not be justice for them to be convicted of a crime. I don't know yet, but that it's not it's not uh, a time for righteous indignation about them being, you know, um, pitchforks out there for them, like as if they, they're completely not culpable in some way, because morally and ethically. Uh, it's pretty clear that they have to bear some responsibility. Whether they do criminally, we'll find out. Um, but the tone doesn't match, like we keep saying. Yeah, I mean, and the last thing was Sue Klebold. Sue Klebold. Uh, it's a her, great example. Oh, her. She is. This was Columbine was ninety nine. So we're going. I mean, April will be the twenty twenty three. Yep, twenty third um, anniversary of that. So it's a quarter century almost. It's, it's wild to think about. It just doesn't feel like that long ago. But even now, when she's on the speaking circuit, she she gave a TED talk. She wrote a book, A Mother's Reckoning. She still, despite us all knowing there's no reason she should have known, asks herself, "Something I could have done. What did I miss? What could I have? That was there something he said? It's been almost a quarter makes you pretty sympathetic, doesn't yeah. it? I can tell you're sympathetic. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's still, and she has no reason. There's no evidence that she should have known. And she's sitting there, just asking herself that this is a quarter century later." This just happened, uh, you know, two months ago now. But even in the immediate, when they first were arrested, it was like a, like a week ago. And they're just hiding under a couch. <laughs> it just seems to be like a one-off sentence or like, you know, paying mine. My, you know, our clients are very sad or they're, they're this or that. And then 90% indignation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Grab, grab your club and start swinging. Right. So last thing before we move on, these trials are interesting in their contrast. Because remember, there's two separate trials, you know, but for the people out there. There's the, uh, the joint defendants trial again, or not trial, but case uh, charges against the parents and then separate from them, Ethan Crumbly. Now, the argument for the Crumblies is essentially we weren't negligent or not grossly negligent to satisfy the element of the crime. And the kid did an almost 
uh, impressive job locating the gun. We did a great job. He was incredibly uh, uh, premeditated. This was the, uh, the most wonderful premeditation ever. That seems to be their argument for a layman. And then the counter of the argument for Ethan Crumbly is, oh, here's this poor kid neglected by his parents. Uh, obvious cries out for help. How could they not help him? The parents ignored him. I want to pull out, this was a great quote. I, I was mulling this over and did some research on it. I thought I was brilliant and I was the only one that came up with this angle. Apparently it's been discussed. <laughs> so this is, we're staying home here. I hope I pronounce his name right. Eve Primus? Is, oh, Professor Primus. Primus. She, okay, thank you. Good it, might be, it might be Primus. I've only seen it in writing. She and her husband are, are very, very popular and famous professors. I, I'm going to go with Primus. I think it is Primus. Primus, it sounds, is Primus. It sounds cooler. It, it, so, it is, and they're both very, very well known. So this is this is her take on this University of Michigan Law School uh, professor, obviously an attorney herself. Quote, if Ethan Crumbly is a child under his parents' control, it's less likely that he can independently break the chain from them to these deaths. By charging him as an adult, the prosecutor is communicating their view that Ethan Crumbly is an independent actor and has the agency and decision-making capability that an adult would have. So they're not adversarial parties at trial by definition. Uh, they're separate trials, uh, potential trials. They're not, um, you know, technically against each other. But in spirit and where this is going, they kind of are. Because if I'm Ethan Crumbly's counsel, I'm saying, these parents let, let me down. Flip side, parents are saying, look, this kid, this kid did some horrible shit. We did nothing. We couldn't stop it. We had no, no idea. Is that a fair read on it? And secondary to that, does the prosecution, because it's coming from the same office, have an issue there where they're saying over here, these parents fucked up and this was a profound level. Of course, this kid was going to do something horrible with how they were acting. But over here in the courtroom next door, I'm arguing potentially this kid's acts were so heinous we got to max him out on the penalty it seems to be a little bit of an issue there for the prosecuting office am i out to lunch here where am i at no uh, you're you're not out to lunch um the the forgive me now but the first point you made i agreed with the the remind I, me of the former oh of the first point yeah i i mean i i think it's just essentially that they're they're adversarial not oh, the, at the, trial, but it. like that their arguments, basically what I'm arguing is it's parents first kid here is what, and not, I got they're you. not in court together. They're in different courtrooms. I, I got lost in professor primus as I'm thinking well, about that it. Cause I don't necessarily agree with it, but the, yeah. but the former they're, they, they are incongruous in the sense that they are going to blame each other. I, I agree with you. You're not out. To lunch they're going against their kid here. And, and uh, Rob Snell of the uh, Detroit news asked me this. He goes, do you think, uh, do you think their uh, counsel is going to cooperate? You know, or they have like a joint defense agreement. Sometime we call them. If you have co-defendants, you'll all sign an agreement that we all have privilege with each other so we can coordinate. And the answer to that is is no, because they're what you just said, uh, because their defenses are incongruous. Ethan's defense, his mitigation defense is my parents messed me up. Right. And all of these other factors that come with being an adolescent. His parents defense are. Ethan's a monster, right? And acted in a way we never could have predicted. I mean, those don't fit, right? So um, that that is not a crazy thought, and that's absolutely true. To the latter point, I, I think it's thought-provoking provoking Professor Primus's um, analysis of this, but I think it's irrelevant to, to is my initial reaction to that because 
there's no requirement of a showing that the prosecutor that somehow um, he, he was independent or, or under his parents' guise to prove first-degree murder. You need a, a plan, a deliberate and uh, premeditated murder, a killing. It doesn't matter whether he was messed up by his parents or not to prove first-degree murder. So I, I, that's wholly independent. And I don't think it signals anything because there's no legal relevance in, before a jury as to him being tried as an adult. Could could uh, Shannon and Marielle, the lawyers for the cr- uh, Crumley parents, argue, you know, they charged him as an adult. They charged him separately of this crime. It, it shows you what the prosecutor and th- what we believe. This was an independent act that no one could have predicted. Can they argue that? Of course. Do I think charging him separately somehow has any legal implication as to whether or not there's causation? No. The question is going to remain the same no matter how you slice this. Were the actions that these parents took or failed to take that we're all outraged by, did that necessarily lead to or with the necessary consequence the murder of these children? I do have trouble getting there, but not because he's charged as an adult or separately or be, you know that he has his own... Um, you know, person to make these decisions. That's not why. It's because that's a tough call. Like, it's so shocking and such an independent cause that could you say that anyone could ever predicted this because I didn't take him out of school that day? I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that yes and one to be made that no, it, it, it's not criminal uh, culpability. So I don't know if I'm getting too uh, law school-y, but... Uh, that's why you're I, here. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I didn't bring I here for a layman discussion. I, I, I would love to have that discussion with Professor Primus to try to match with with such a legend, but um, I don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah, that's interesting because I was kind of thinking where she was, but I don't know what I'm talking about. But I, but I get, <laughs> so. I mean, I get the point, right? You're 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 signaling in terms of a narrative that yeah. he is an independent actor. He's capable of forming complex thoughts as a 15 year old that he knows right from wrong. This was cold calculated murder. I get what you're saying, and and that is uh, kind of. Um, runs contrary to the idea that his parents are responsible for his actions. I get that from a narrative standpoint. From a legal standpoint, I don't see any legal consequence of how that's not, how that's relevant. Um, he can be an independent actor who chose to commit cold-blooded murder, and you could have, uh, being the, you, you being the parents, could have committed or omitted actions that allowed for that to happen. I, I see them both things as being possible. Yeah, it's it's yeah. fascinating, and that's why I said the, the Ethan Crumley thing kind of boring in terms. I mean, horrible case, but I mean, as far as a legal matter, no, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. Straightforward, yeah, boor- yeah. much better L- way to put L- it. Like, life without parole or not, right? And that's a reasonable debate. I can see how you can come down on both sides. Exactly. I, the liberal, you know, ideologically liberal human being that I am, yes. would try to be consistent that I don't believe it in any case for any child for any reason. Um. But it's hard. I, I, it's still, you know, it's hard when you're dealing with, um, you know, isolated stories and 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 th- especially something as heinous as this. But it's straightforward. Uh, his case, Crumley is going to be fascinating. I mean, if that you talk about percentages, anyone lets that get before a jury, whether they make a deal or don't make a deal, whatever happens, if that gets before a jury, it's absolutely a dice roll. I'm not going to put a number, but it's very close, very marginal. I I, I think it's around fifty fifty. You just yeah. don't. It, one juror hears something different. You have expressed how that your your dislike for them, and yes. I certainly don't like the way they handle themselves either. Um, but we both have expressed an openness to not guilty based on the law. Well, and I, that I says think a that, lot right there. That's important, though, for the reasons you. But that outlined. says a lot. Yeah. The two folks that I mean, granted, we are both have legal education, so we should appreciate that. But two folks who are already 
part of that jury pool that may be tainted, right, in a sense, are both open to not, you know, being fair. Oh, and that's really for jury selection. You don't have in a perfect world. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but what I was taught was it, it's not that like you have to have never even heard of correct. this. It's like if you can be objective. Change it's, of venue is a huge misnomer. I get asked yeah. all the time when yeah. there's media cases. First of all, without getting into the detail that, and this is dad, my dad, may he rest in peace, it's his fault because in the Jack Jackaloni case from 1969, uh, no, it wasn't the Jack Jackaloni case. It was the, um, and one of your favorite guests, Scott Bernstein, could talk a lot about this. It was the John Norman Collins serial killer because the Michigan co-ed killer. They tried to get a change of venue for him and it was denied, but that made bad law for Michigan for getting a change of venue for everyone. So thanks, dad. Uh, for for changing it in a bad way. It's very hard to get a change of venue, is my point. If John Norman Collins, the co-ed killer who had Ann Arbor terrified uh, in the 60s, um, a serial killer in Michigan, couldn't get a change of venue, um, it made it very hard for anyone to get a change of venue. So the, the, the law is, in short, it's not about whether someone's heard of it or read about it. You're... Finding someone, frankly, I don't even necessarily think it would be a good juror to find someone who's never heard of it because I don't know that they're, if they're that out of touch, <laughs> yeah, then I don't know how much common sense point. they may or may not have. So it's not necessarily a desirable quality that you're that out of touch. Um, it's not finding someone who knows nothing about it. It's finding someone that no matter what they have heard can be fair. And whether you can believe that based on, you know, you ask I actually think I could be a juror, though. I absolutely yeah. think you yeah. can be a juror. You've expressed why yeah. uh, in a far more complex way than we ever really get out in jury voir dire. You know, lawyers and judges ask questions of jurors to try to provoke any biases or anything like that. Not to trick people, but to just make sure that the folks deciding it don't have some kind of bias they don't, might not right. even know is relevant. It, it'll be interesting. My prediction... My honest prediction, again, with what we know now, that's we couch everything with that. There could be something that drops in either direction, pro or, or anti. I think they're going to walk, and that's what I and I don't. If, want. if it goes to trial, yes, yeah, and it might very well might. And I, I don't want them to walk. <laughs> like I just, you know, unless unless there's a huge mitigating factor, it's like, oh yeah, they're fine. Like if they just walk. Like, can we get them for something? Like, it, it, that's where these pre-trial discussions I mean, will take Karen place. Karen McDonald's talking about how she there's really no other statutes. You know, there's nothing about storing a gun properly with you know juveniles. And What's that. the sentencing guideline if they're convicted? What's what well, the involuntary for? manslaughter is a 15 year max. Okay, and they have no criminal history, and I you know I haven't. Well, a minor criminal history. Is there a minimum no, for for conviction? There's no minimum. Okay. I I I've never I, the guidelines are a mathematical formula. So you you put in there's two things that matter your criminal history you get points so to speak for how many criminal history you have felonies misdemeanors that's one category the other category is called offense variables aggravating circumstances in the crime was there a vulnerable victim was there a weapon used was there psychological trauma here in involuntary manslaughter a lot of those we call them OVs offense variables won't be in play um, some of them uh, will be but uh, I don't know what the, the, the they'll be but the, they'll be modest they're not going to be we're not talking a decade in, in prison uh, the guy we're going to be talking probably prison guidelines over 12 months but but uh, you're not talking about anything substantial yeah. for, for someone with no criminal history and where they're not the actual you know having taken a life right this is one step removed from that yep. so I, I would imagine not having actually done the formula which you know we could run it online I would imagine that they'd be modest guidelines the maximum's 15 but we're talking you know 
months and years, not uh, you know five years, ten years. And whether or not this goes to trial and they walk, what I feel ninety seven percent confident on is whatever the result. The public's not going to be happy for the reasons you outlined. This is why we're doing this show. Like, I understand this to some degree for sure, just based on, you know, my background and, like, I read about this stuff. But if you go to the – I mean, God forbid, you go to the YouTube comments on anything with this case, (laughs) it's not just one or two kooks. It's like most people Facebook. Like, people – like, that's just random people. People my aunts and stuff are like, like, oh, like they're going away for life for sure. It's like that's not even on the table. No, That's not – there's no there's no chart they're not being charged with something where that's applicable. So people have such a misconception with just legal stuff. Remember in general, the charge is involuntary manslaughter. So as much as uh, the vitriol and, and the disdain for these folks, which I'm not passing judgment justified or not, I have my own take on some of the things I've shared. Um, all that aside, involuntary manslaughter. Think about it in theory. It's an unintentional killing. You know, it's oftentimes you'll you'll think about when you think about involuntary manslaughter, you'll think about a car accident where either someone was drunk um, or just doing something completely reckless and someone dies as a result. You did something terrible or something grossly negligent like we talked about and and someone dies as a result, but you didn't intend the killing. So we view that in the law, for better or worse, as less culpable. You know, you should do less time or less punishment because of the unintentional nature of it. The next level up would be voluntary manslaughter. It's an, in, an intention to do something to hurt someone, but maybe not necessarily kill them, or it's got some mitigating circumstances. The, one of the uh, proverbial examples of voluntary manslaughter are heat of passion killings. You know, you walk in on your spouse cheating and you kill the cheater. And that's the, you're not deliberating, you're not premeditating, you know, it's, it's a heat of passion killing. So you, and then you go up from there, second degree, first degree, and so on. So this is, the, this is a homicide case, but it's the least culpable, what we view as the least culpable, which is unintentional. Killing. Yeah, you're on, you're on the bottom rung, essentially. Right. So, so it's still a 15-year yeah. max, but with with the sentencing guidelines, I can't imagine these guidelines would be you know, overwhelming. In fact, by the time they actually, depending on what happens with their bond, they're probably going to be close to time served uh, by the time they uh, ever get to a trial, um, which will make a deal more possible, too. I should, you know. I'm thinking out loud as I'm saying this, but you know you're gonna do months and months in jail right now. They don't have a bond. They're not. Uh, this counts, right? All yeah. these, all these days. Yeah, time done, served. Already done thirty days. Yeah. So uh, you know, by the time they get through all this, if they can't post a bond, you know, risking a trial. It, I could see that cutting either way now as I'm talking this out loud because on the one hand, you've already put in the time of your guidelines, maybe or close. Uh, so why don't we go to trial? But on the other hand, we could just be done with it. So I could see that. It'll be interesting to play ways. out. And again, that is the more interesting of the two cases. So we'll get off them uh, generally and, and wrap here before our speed round, which we'll try to rip through fast for your sure. sake because you got to be in court in the morning, actually. <laughs> so I feel bad. We're going don't feel long. bad. I am grateful that you, that you have me. Uh, happy to have you. You said something interesting uh, 20 minutes ago about, uh, don't get me wrong, like I would defend the Crumblies in a second or something uh, to paraphrase. One of my favorite movies ever in any category is Primal Fear. And it's, it's certainly in the legal realm one of my favorites. It's, it's just – it's top 15 to 17 for me, just fantastic. Top 15 to 17. It's very precise. Yeah. Well, it's, it's better than tw- – it's definitely better than top 20. It's not the 19th. So I pulled a scene, uh, Ben and I, from this that I, I think is iconic to me. and We cut it up a little bit where this reporter that's covering him is asking him essentially – 
how do you do what you do? You're representing this guy that's alleged to have hacked up this beloved priest figure, and you let you defend these huge scumbags. Like, how do you how do you do that? And Martin Vale, played by Richard Gere, kind of gets into the, the meat of that. How can you defend someone if you know they did it? How can you do that? How can you fucking defend these fucking scumbags? Isn't that what you want to ask me? It is, isn't it? Huh? All those fucking coy questions, all that bullshit. Bottom line is, how can you do what you do? I believe in the notion that people are innocent until proven guilty. I believe in that notion because I choose to believe in the basic goodness of people. I choose to believe that not all crimes are committed by bad people. And I try to understand that some very, very good people do some very bad things. Now, you're Wade Fink. I'm, you're, I'm fired up. Now. Yeah, see, the, I'm going to put it on a tee for you. So you're, you're Wade Fink. You're a wildly successful defense Thank attorney. You, Your father, rest in peace, Neil Fink, was a, a legend. I mean, just everybody in the legal community in Michigan knows who he is. Defended Jack Jackaloni, various mafia figures, right? He was like the mafia uh, defense attorney. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't, is your mom a defense attorney? She is. She is, she yep. is right? I Comes thought out, so. Yep. Yep, yep. Your your mom's a defense attorney. You so, know, Dad, just to put it out there because yeah. I want the world to know, you know, there was Tony Soprano's lawyer and the Sopranos was named Neil Mink. You know, my dad's name was Neil Fink. I didn't watch the Sopranos. I, I didn't know that. Is that I, that's it, shameful, first of all, that you haven't watched Sopranos. But is that but true? That, they the did an homage to your dad? Neil Mink and Neil Fink. I that's, mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, but I he's he's my role model. So anytime I can build him up, I'd love to. But go ahead. You don't need to. Just go, just Google <laughs> Google the guy. He's, he's, he's like iconic. He's my hero. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, he's a lot of people in, in your fields. Like he's he's way up there. He's kind of on that Mount Rushmore, uh, certainly in Michigan. But this is kind of pumping through your veins. Both your parents, sure. you look. Martin Vale to me, even though he got the spoiler kind of duped in the, in, in the end, is one of my favorite characters. Just. He's kind of a dick, but like he's a principal dick. He actually, you watch that scene or listen to it. That he's being genuine there. Right? Is that ring true to you? Is that kind of your thing where it's not just the presumption of innocence, which I think most people can even begrudgingly accept, but is there a little bit of like, look, some of my clients are guilty as fuck and they should pay a penalty, but I want to take a little bit off there because I think they may have been a good person that did a bad thing. It's twofold, and I love this question, and I get it all the time, and I had the benefit, and probably why I ended up, despite, you know, wanting to do this at one point, you know, broadcasting and everything that I wanted to do, probably why I ended up here, because when I was yay big, you know, I'd hear my dad ask that question all the time. I knew people, whatever, about how do you do this, how do you defend them, you know you're guilty, and he would say two things, and I and I repeat it because I believe it, um, you know. I'm going to start with what was said in Primal Fear, which is usually a second point, but but it's true. My dad always says that no person should be judged by by one act, you know, or by you know a point in their life, maybe if it was a you know more than one act, because people are more complicated and complex than that. And you know, there are the heinous cases that we talked about tonight that are kind of the exception to you know that kind of <laughs> we all kind of agree on are just beyond the pale in some ways. Um, but there's there's so much out there that is so uh, gray rather than black and white and who people are and what it says about them, especially with narcotics, especially when you factor in uh, poverty and the circumstances uh, uh, that people find themselves in. Um, you know, it, and sometimes it it's it's getting better 
uh, the more educated I think the judiciary is becoming. But it's important that advocates like myself and others at the defense bar explain how people find themselves in the circumstances they they are in because um, people, like I said, are complicated. You don't have to like the crime. Let's talk about it in the sense of narcotics. You don't have to like support drug dealing, right? You don't have to be a uh, uh, condone that behavior, but you can certainly understand it. Someone who showers in rainwater, who doesn't have power on in, in Detroit and has no escape, no education, parents, you know, or addicts themselves or in prison themselves, who needs a few bucks. You can understand it. doesn't make it. It's not good, and we should work on eradicating it and address the, a lot of issues other than just the crime part of it, poverty. But you can understand it. So advocating for folks who find them in those circumstances who have um, a story that needs to be told, that that's one way. That's one answer to that question. But the second is what I addressed earlier, and it's every bit as important um, for that first category of persons and everyone. If you throw away Ethan Crumley because we have videos, because we all know he's guilty, we all know what happened. If we strip the word allegedly, we don't have a trial and say, guys, we, we, what are we doing here? We know what happened. Just carry on. Put him away. If we do that, you start chipping away at the protections that this country is based on, right? Date back to the Magna Carta in the 1200s, the law geek in me, um, that protects actually innocent people. By protecting guilty people, whether they admit it to me or not, or whether I have my suspicions or not, by protecting the rights for the absolute worst or for folks who are guilty, if I make sure that system is whole, if I make the prosecutors do everything right, if I make police answer their search warrants correctly, um, if, I, if, if it's there for that person, the system should work. That person should still be convicted if they're guilty, right? And, and, um, and, and if not and one, two, three slip through the cracks, if the system's protected, then we shouldn't have innocent people or as many going to jail. We protect that system for those because if you don't to have those protections, that's when it starts getting easier to see injustices happen. So your client is almost the principles of the system as much 100%. as it is the individual, right? Absolutely. You're protecting the system by affording these folks these rights. And even if 99% of them are guilty, 98, 95, whatever, if we are as viciously protective over their rights and their Fourth Amendment rights and their you know Fifth Amendment self-incrimination, Miranda warning, all those things, if we viciously protect every piece of it and make the government go through all the steps – then we know that when an actually innocent person comes along where those protections are supposed to help, they'll be sound. There won't be you know, cracks in, the, in it where it's going to fall apart. Now, this is a theoretical perfect world. There are cracks. There are problems. There's bad judges. There's bad prosecutors, bad police. But um, I don't view it as just that individual. I do in some, for the first reason I outlined, but I also view it as protecting the system. The scariest thing in the world, um, and I care about all my clients. You know, like I said, there's reasons people get into certain situations. But the scariest thing in the world is having someone you believe to be actually innocent. Uh, the scariest thing in the world. Uh, I can, you know, a couple come to my head and still give me chills. And fortunately, I've never had a knocking on wood here, uh, an outcome um, where that I have to live with what I think is an innocent person still suffering. Um, I, I'm fighting for some currently, so I, I shouldn't say that, you know, I, I've certainly lost. Um, but that's scary because, you know, you see someone accused of something and you just know it in your heart and soul that they're not. And someone is working 
very hard to put them put them in prison. And I can't think of anything worse than someone clawing at the walls, being innocent, being in a prison. So yeah, I mean, those are I'm much I'm much more comfortable, much more much more comfortable with a guilty person going free than an innocent person going to jail. And that's the whole principle. You know, underlying our, our system. That's right? one L. I mean, that's that's, what, that's yeah. the whole. Yeah. And you don't listen. It's okay to debate as a society things, but this is a founding principle. We would rather ninety nine guilty go free than one innocent go to jail. We don't throw innocent peoples away because that's how much we value the individual. You know that we're we're willing to protect that one person, even if it means some guilty people are going to go free. I mean, I even stuff as small as OWIs, Justin, as small as that, right? Wait, they're drunk drivers. We know they blew point. You work in Birmingham. You're getting all of the OWS. But, but, but think That's about right, it. Wait, they blew point one seven, and they were yeah. driving. They could have killed someone. I get it. But how many people do you not see that get pulled over? Women, yeah. black, white, that blew zeros, and we never see in court, and we're just taunted by police or rights trampled on. I mean, those things matter. Those things matter. Is there? And we'll finish here. Is there? You seem to be an absolutist here. Is there a place you wouldn't go? Purist. Either way. Yeah, purist, absolutist, yeah. <laughs> either way. It's just, the bottom line is, is there a a place you wouldn't go? This person is accused of the worst thing imaginable. I don't know, uh, raping, killing 50 kids or something. It's very hard. Child, I mean, child it, porn cases are part of the federal system. Yeah. Uh, and I'm on the federal panel, which is um, it's the federal's version of uh, appointed lawyers. Um it's really I was honored to be on it at, at the age I am. Uh, and I, you know, so I'm not going to turn down cases for people who need representation. But it's very hard to, to do those cases. I, 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 I don't minimize it. But then again, there's there's doesn't excuse anything. And it's horrible. And it's hard to deal with that. And I, in my own mind, I have to, to reconcile my beliefs with some heinous acts. But there are complexities that otherwise people would never know about how horrific somebody's life might have been, you know, uh, and, you know, consumption versus production of this of this horrible material. So those cases are very hard. But I try to employ the same principles that I do to anyone. I mean, OWI is one thing, you know, if there's no accident involved, uh, you know, things like that. But in your in your dad's experience, did he ever tell you or in your mom's or in your personal experience, was there a situation where you're in court trying to mitigate for your client and you got the family members of some victim, whether it was an injury, death or whatever, and they're glaring at you like they want you dead. That's like it, terrible. It, that's, yeah. I, I don't All know if that's time. happened to you. It had to have happened. It's common. Your dad was around for so long doing this. All of us. It's common. I, I mean, I've sat with my dad in court when I was a law clerk or, you know, just before I went to law school. I've tried cases with my mother. I've had them myself. Does that weigh yeah, on it's, you? It's like, horrible. I mean, yeah. you, in a, at a sentencing, for example, you know, after a plea or conviction, family gets to speak. And, you know, in cases where, you know, the allegations are something of violence, whether it's a sexual assault, whether it's a you know homicide or an assault or somebody gets seriously you know hurt, whatever it is, those words can be very harsh from the victims to my client. And I'm sitting at the table with my client. And certainly when I'm saying things, you, you, you can feel it, too. But despite it being a difficult circumstances, by and large, I have always, always found well, – most times, the vast majority, that families of victims are very respectful of the profession, uh, that don't, you know, heckle you or give you problems. In fact, you know, I've, I've had some shake hands or nod or I think they know, you know, it's your duty. And I think a lot of people, you know, uh, have the civics part of what, what our job is. So I think the vast majority of times they're, they're, 
their understanding. And of course, there's some that are just so heated passion and such. I mean, if something happened to something we cared about, Justin, it, it's hard to imagine how we would feel. Uh, yeah, about I don't. That. I don't begrudge yeah. them. I, think I it's don't a either. Natural byproduct. And that's know? why I would never get upset when it, the rare times it does get a little, a little, you know, little some animosity. Heated. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's, I, mean, my, I saw that my dad walked out to the car by law enforcement before in, a, in heated cases. Oh, really? Not that he needed it necessarily, but they just insisted. I mean, there's just. We had a very emotional case I tried with Neil Rockine, one of the great attorneys around in our area, uh, where we got an acquittal. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a big tragedy. Not that there was no animosity or safety issues. It was just, you know, it's, it's tough because one side lost someone. Uh, you don't believe your client's at fault for it, but they're still, you're still human. You just, I don't want you to someone. end up in like the law-abiding citizen plot where you're Jamie Foxx and some guy's trying to bully you up. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's stuff that you, you're a nice guy and it's like a you're doing your, it's, it's good. Now, it's not Primal Fear old, but it's a good one. It's, it's a good popcorn movie. So we'll move on. So th- we are doing a special speed round just for you. Let's oh, no. launch it. It's going to be very on brand for okay. you, man. So let's go. This is a, a – we normally we have like the speeding car and I'm asking people about sports and I'm asking people about their favorite hamburger in Oakland County and all the stupid – Yeah, when are we going to talk about Sean McVay? The, the, yeah, well, that'll be after. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. What time do you have to be in court tomorrow? <laughs> so our special speed round for you is all legal-based. I, I, you know, I'm sorry because I know we've been on no, topic with it. I got I got to have it with the experts. So I, I know you, you're a supporter of the show. You sponsored the show in the past. You've watched the show. You kind of know – don't give me a deep dive because we'll be here you got 10 it. hours. You got it. Give me like it's hard for me, you know. One, well, talk as long as you want. But <laughs> what our goal is like one to two minutes max. You got so, it. But if you want to go longer, it's up to you. All right, so we'll start here. The Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, you spoke on this publicly in the immediate aftermath. I happen to agree with you. A lot of people were mad. What do you make of the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict? This was the correct legal result in my view. I did not watch every second of the trial. I watched uh, a, a bit of it. It was always out in the background while I was working. Um, I do not think Kyle Rittenhouse is a good actor uh, necessarily. Um, I, I do think he's a kid, and I would, like anyone else, have sympathy for where his head's at or how he was raised, and, and I certainly don't know those things. Shouldn't have been there. Shouldn't have had that gun. Shouldn't have put himself in that circumstance. I think he, I think the evidence probably showed he was probably looking for a fight, to be honest with you, or looking to stare down some folks that he didn't like or disagree with. I don't know if that, uh, no evidence that that was necessarily racial or not. So I don't like him. <laughs> I don't like his conduct. I don't like that he was there. Legal result was absolutely correct. And that's okay. And I, and I think people should understand that. And, uh, you know, Liberals and, and conservatives alike, I think, should um, take comfort that our juries take their roles very seriously and read the jury instructions and uh, decide cases based on the facts and law and not temperatures outside the courtroom. That took some courage for that for that jury verdict, just like others. So in speed round terms, right results, don't like the kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In, in the, summary, you mentioned it earlier, but for those that don't know or didn't listen to it or didn't catch it, like you're pretty unabashedly a liberal guy. Oh, like, for sure. So, because sure. there is somebody watching this or listening yeah. to it after the fact, it's like, oh, this guy's like a huge Trump guy. <laughs> that guy's out there. There's probably more than one, but just <laughs> for the record, that's not you. All right, moving on. Older case, to me, much more fascinating in terms of the backstory. The Casey Ooh. Anthony verdict. This is one I don't have an answer for because, first of all, I 100% think she, she did it. I mean, whether, to, whether it was you know, intentional or negligence and she covered it up or whatever, um, I think she was a criminal that got off. 
But just uh, from the legal perspective and how that played out, I don't know to what extent you remember it. I can help fill in some blanks maybe. But what did you make of her I, walking? I, she I remember enough to say this. I think it's the wrong result. Um, I, I think the evidence there was overwhelming. But I thought the lawyering was fantastic. For her, yeah, Diaz, uh, he, he, uh, he did a fantastic. Yeah, Brian Diaz, I think his name was, uh, and 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 did some pretty prominent ones after. Um, you know, he the prosecutor wasn't ready, I think, for some of his theories. I think, I mean, he ended up, I think, blaming the father at some point, right? Or yeah, and, they threw and, the father, correct, and, yeah, which is said he molested her and absolutely savage. And I don't, and I got you only, you have to have a good faith basis to to do something like that. So I assume came from his client. But his is as a, as a um, strategic matter. It was excellent lawyering. But I uh, I was convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, based on what I remember of that case, that she she was guilty. And I I don't think that was a good result. However, like I've always maintained and will continue to be consistent, I will never begrudge a jury who holds the prosecutor to their to their burden. It, when they go back in that jury room, I have found that jurors are just exceptionally thoughtful. They want the rules. They want to understand it. By and large, even though I had a pretty big media case where a juror turned out to be racist, um, that aside, that anomaly, if jurors come back with a not guilty verdict, I'm not going to begrudge them because it's, it's, I think it's good for our system in general that juries hold prosecutors to the, to the high standard that they need to be held to. The judge in that case came out after the fact and said that he thought she was guilty, which I thought was interesting. I mean, there's, there's once nothing, it's an acquittal, it's over. Right, there's right, nothing right, for uh, right. double jeopardy. There's something they can right. do, but I thought it was a lot of judges, whatever they think aren't, even though they can, right. they're not going to speak on I, that. That, that evidence, I, I don't, it's been a while now, but from what I recall, uh, I remember that was one of the few I've been wrong about. I, I, my, I'm batting like you know 900 on calling these verdicts. Yeah. So that was the second most shocking in our lifetime. I mean, OJ, Next to the obvious, right? OJ is number one, but that was second most shocking. Absolutely, I mean, that's. 100%. I don't think. I don't think there's even like a close third. There've been other surprises, but in terms of a big scale, I'm sure. That's only level. really a two shock, truly shocking that I can think of. It, it was spectacular, but the the thing that happened that the reason why she walked, and this is the uh, judge's opinion, and I think he's right is the jury said the reason they acquitted was because the prosecution could not prove how Casey Anthony killed her. But the judge was saying, and I'll take him at his word, the law, that they, don't think, they don't have that. I, it may be different in but Georgia. That, that is what's so beautiful about the jury system, Justin, is, you know, whatever they might, you'll never, sometimes you can never predict what they had a problem with. It's not required. But it causes it could cause reasonable doubt about something else that they don't know the cause. And if you don't know the cause, it causes you to question something else, right? You you never know what they might hang their hat on. I have had jurors that look at me like you know they hate me, and I'm like, well, I'm never getting juror number eight. Turns out it was my best friend, and they picked up on something yeah. I said. So stuff like that is very common that they 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 latch on to something and it causes doubt in other parts of the case. That was that was bad, though. I mean, the judge insinuated in an interview that, oh, if I was the prosecutor, I may have requested a special jury instruction to 
specify that, that we don't have to prove that, that that's not part of it. But he said, the judge said, if they don't ask me to give a special instruction, I just have to read the card. Well, a lot of a lot of the standard jury instructions include stuff like that. You don't have to prove motive. You don't have to. You this know. one apparently so, didn't. Interesting. Yeah. According to the judge, I didn't, I didn't fact check, but I'll take the judge who presided. Over I remember the, the cause being an issue, but I don't remember there not being a special instruction. That's a good. She, she walked that's, based on something that they wasn't bad. even an element. That's bad. So that was that was that was a bad one. All right. This is one that was uh, maybe even more famous in terms of the pop culture, if not uh, in Newsweek. <laughs> Making a murderer, Stephen Avery, the Stephen Avery verdict. Um, I got really into this. What This is one, everyone was like pissed when they watched it, and then you read the facts, and it's like, oh, he probably did do it. That was my experience with it. I don't know how much you've gone into this. But I got really into it. I think, he, I, must I think he was guilty, and that was a nice, uh, maybe some impropriety about the process and some issues there. But I, I think, I'm not asking about strictly the legal process, but like, in part, but did he do it? Like, if I'm, if I, if I had, if I was a betting man, which I am, yeah, uh, me too. It, I, 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 would, I would bet us right. I would bet a substantial amount that that uh, he took part in, in Teresa Halbach's death. See, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, however, the latter point that you made, maybe there's some problems with the process. I think that is the most important part. I have no doubt in my mind, Justin. I'm more sure about this than I am about his guilt. I am more sure that the police and DA. Uh, manufactured evidence and forwarded manufactured evidence knowingly to make sure they got the conviction. I'm more sure of that like than I am of his guilty. Yeah. I am certain about that key. Uh, there is no way you go in and out of a trailer of that size and find the key on the sixth search um, or whatever number it was in, in the open territory it was. The the blood the the blood on the and the DNA um, on the, the latch and the other issues that we have. And then the most appalling part of the case, it has to go without saying, and I don't, I don't think he had any part of it is my gut feeling is the way Brendan Dassey was treated in that interview. It is skin crawling. And that if you want to see police abuse, okay. And what they can do to what I think is likely an innocent person. Um, and if, even if you don't believe Brendan is, trust me, they've, that, that, that has happened. It's been proven over and over again, false confessions. That's how they do it. Go watch the, confession of Brendan, I'm putting air quotes for listeners, uh, of Brendan Dassey and the tactics that police used in that interview to elicit that confession from a kid whose IQ was probably under 100. They say it's the IQ, it, it, he had the IQ of like, it was like a first grader or something. It, it was it was an appalling embarrassment. Those cops should never work again. That DA is, is disgust me and he ended up in his own uh, problem. I think he was texting a, a yeah. sexual assault victim yep. or something. So he got his. Um, and he should be disbarred or whatever away from the practice of, of accusing people. Um, so I, everything was disgusting and, and, and incestuous in that law enforcement prosecutor community. All that said, I, I think the facts that weren't really revealed in season one about Stephen, not about Brendan, about Stephen, uh, were pretty damning. Uh, some of the stuff that we didn't hear. So I, and also, you know, people who, uh, Torture animals, uh, you know, pretty big fact that was just like thrown in the first episode and never mentioned again uh, about Avery. But I don't know. I, I would have no problem if I was wearing a black robe. Maybe I shouldn't say this if I ever have a chance of being a judge, but I would have no problem tossing that case based on what the police and prosecutor did because uh, you can do that to an innocent person. And we're getting back to that same yeah. principle, right? That's how innocent people go to jail when you have 
uh, law enforcement like that. That was a disgrace. I think Brendan Dassey should have been the one on the posters. It was always right. Avery's, Avery's like silhouette. He's the more tragic figure, I think, because I really don't think he had anything to do with it. Oh. His story made no sense. I, I, I think he really was tricked into saying these things. Oh, the no idea where itself. she was shot. Nothing made sense. He told them what they wanted to hear because he wanted to go watch WrestleMania. He didn't. The, he's he's talking. He's calling his mom. After he asked he if confessed. he could go back to class. After yeah, too, he's right? like, "Am I going back to class? Like, when am oh, I going to watch? Oh, right. Yeah, like when am I going to watch WrestleMania? Like, am I coming? It hurts. Back? It really, that really yeah. hurts my heart. It, and the judge, the judge who dissented, that was extraordinary too. I don't know. I'm I'm speed rounding your uh, making it long round. Um, the the Circuit Court of Appeals reversed initially on the three panel. Then all the judges took it, which is a procedural move. All the judges of a circuit can take it. And they reversed the reversal and they reinstated his conviction. And one of the dissenting judges wrote that it made her skin crawl. And that's always stuck with me because that's what it does to me, um, that that confession. It really is. It was really awful. As usual, people get it wrong because it's like it, he probably did do it. But the case probably should have been thrown out because there was – I mean, there was not one issue. There were like what, but three are, or four But these are issues. good examples, though, of yeah. why it's okay to, you know, whether you have questions or not when you have such appalling police and prosecutorial behavior because we do have examples of people being exonerated. Right? We have them here in Michigan. Unfortunately, we've had several in the last few years. People who spent 40 years in jail for a sexual assault they didn't commit. Uh, Gobby Silver uh, released uh, Val Newman, re, uh, lawyer in Wayne County's integrity unit, frees people, you know, it seems like almost every week. Uh, so there are innocent people that go to jail, everyone. There are innocent people that go to jail. So when you look at these cases of bad police conduct and think, well, they are guilty, think critically about how do we protect the innocent? We got to protect them too. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. So on that note, the greatest injustice you have seen. Now, this doesn't have to be. Uh, a case you worked necessarily, although it certainly can be. But what was the greatest injustice you've seen hmm. in your career? A, a friend was you were representing, or it was in the news in Colorado. Was there an example? It can be one of the ones that were exonerated. Is there a case that sticks out where this guy really got boned by the system for there's whatever so, reason? There's so much injustice that that I I wouldn't be doing justice to those cases if I tried to pick one. So I'm just going to use my own uh, because it, it sticks out to me as one of my First cases when I left and went to my own practice, and it was Sawatu. Um, for those of you unfamiliar, if you if you Google her name, S I W A T U, Sawatu Ra R A. Uh, if you Google her and look up her story, Sawatu was a um, young black lady in Detroit with a registered firearm um, training, had her CPL, and everything was right. She actually kept it unloaded, which is an, it ended up being an important fact. She. Um, was confronted at her home by her niece's friend. They were hanging out after high school by her niece's friend's mom. She was upset that the she was being sent home. The girls had a fight, some drama amongst high school kids. And the mom of the girl who was at the house was upset with, you know, the other family for her having to go home. Turned into a shouting match. And this woman um, at my client's house, at Suwatu's house, gets in her car and starts revving her engine. And, you know, lurching forward towards her and her family. Her kids are outside. Her mother's outside with her. So Sawatu goes into her car and grabs her unloaded handgun and points it at her. Just get out of here. And using it as a deterrent. And this woman's revving her engine saying she's going to mess him up, saying all these horrible things. Woman ends up leaving. 
They both went to the police at different points. So Atu first had to take care of something. This woman went right to the police. Because she went first, they kind of treated her as the complaining witness as opposed to the instigator. And it uh, turns out this woman was on probation for her third felonious assault at the time. She had put a gun in someone's face and she was on probation at the time. Um, and they ended up charging Sawatu with felonious assault and a felony firearm. And a felony firearm, for those who don't, don't know, in Michigan, it's any felony you commit where a gun uh, is present uh, or you know, connected to the, to the felony. Anything. And it's a two-year mandatory. No discretion to the judge. You have to go to jail for two, prison for two years. This was the most clear self-defense case you've ever seen. You know, it's a, a black woman who did everything in, in America, who did everything right to be a responsible gun owner, and she's now charged with a felonious assault. Um, she gets convicted, and the judge was, uh, you know, I won't get into all the details, but was the, the evidence that came in, nothing about this woman's past of being on probation for the same thing, which would clearly taint your testimony, right? You don't want to get in trouble again for being for assaulting someone. Um, the instructions were wrong about self-defense. The, the, it was a comedy of errors, this trial. She ends up getting convicted. That was one injustice. Here's the greater injustice. At the time she got convicted, uh, she was seven months pregnant. So they go for sentencing, Justin. And, and I don't mind saying the judge's name because it was, it was, it was horrible. Judge Thomas Hathaway. He's given us several options. We have two-year mandatory sentence that has to be served. So she has to go. There's no question about that under the law. Her lawyer at the time, it wasn't me, I, uh, I came in as the appellate lawyer, says, can you adjourn this for two months? You know, we'll come back and then she'll start serving her time. Let her have the baby. Can you allow her to report in two months? OK, you know, you sentence her today, but let her report in two months. Or can you give her a bond pending appeal, meaning let her stay out until the appeal is over? Three options to allow a baby to be born at home with its mother. He says no to all three, and he incarcerates her that day. She ends up having a baby shackled to a bed at a hospital with two guards, no phone, no family, no nothing. Baby's taken away from her 24 hours later. She's returned to prison to recover swollen ankles in these shackles, crying for help. She's worried about having other issues post, uh, post-birth. Um, we go for a bond, are denied by Judge Knapp, Donald Knapp in, in Wayne County, are denied a bond despite all this, despite the baby being on its own with, without its mother. And prosecutor agreed she wasn't dangerous and had no problem with her being released, still didn't release her. Thankfully, our Court of Appeals, some of the best judges in Michigan, reversed 10 days later, sent it back to trial court, and basically, in, in, in the legal sense, said, let her out. Finally got out, she was reunited with her child, and the case was reversed you know, by my office about nine, ten months later, after the appeal ran its course. Um, a happy ending. She was reunited with the child, and um, the, you know, and he's beautiful, um, and I've, you know, been close with the whole family. But for, you know, that is one of a long list of injustices that happen daily in this country. For our system not to have protected a pregnant mother who the prosecutor agreed was not a danger, who had no criminal history, who was an activist in the community, had all these great things about her, for our system not to be able to react fast enough to get this baby born at home with its, you know, and be with its mother. We know all the research about a baby being separated from its mother in its first couple weeks and months, right? Uh, and the impacts that can have was such a tragedy. Um, and I, I don't, I think there were racial elements to it. I think there was 
political elements to it. I think there was bad prosecuting elements to it. Um, but that was one of my great, I would say, successes, but also one of my great heartbreaks was uh, learning that story. I don't know if that was uh, was a long way to answer the question. No, but you that, couldn't do that in short form. I, that, I appreciate that case story. was really uh, important to me. And I encourage people because Sawatu works on behalf of women who are incarcerated now to look up Sawatu's story. I didn't do it justice in that time. It's it's far more nuanced than that. But I can't imagine yeah. giving birth and like you're chained to chained to a bed with guards. Guards are your company. What, what is she I mean, gonna do? Me and you left the hospital at the same time on our on our latest and your latest and my first. Yeah. Um, imagine right. uh, two guards, no phone, no family. Your sure. company is the guards. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that 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 satisfies the question for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about juries. A jury's batting average, in your opinion. How many <laughs> how many times and I'm not talking about uh moral guilt, I'm talking about uh, what they were supposed to do. They they listened to the instruction, they followed the law, they they served their duty properly. What's their batting average? How what are they doing? 900 Study studies there's studies on this uh and I and I don't know what the actual number is. Uh but they are damn good juries. Are they? Okay. They, it is an imperfect system. They make mistakes. I'm hopeful when they make mistakes, they err on the side of not guilty for the reasons we talked about. But studies have shown that juries are really damn good. And, and I don't know how it's difficult to measure it and you'd have to read the studies. But in my estimate, I got to imagine they, they're hitting over 900. And they, uh, on, what's, on what's the just result? I guess. Yeah. Let's call it that. That's what I mean. Yeah. I'm not talking yeah. like, like, you know, someone, um, if the prosecution didn't prove their case, even yeah. if the person actually did kill the person, like, that's what I mean. Like, getting it right in high that 90s. sense. High 90, yeah. 90, 90s. I really... I can't stress enough my experience, even though you're always rolling the dice, you don't know the personalities on the jury, by and large, when you put a group of people together and you've wadeered them enough to see that, make sure there's no, you know, absolute lunatics or, or zealots in, in the jury, that they're just people of the community, they take their jobs so seriously. I love talking to them after. They're so smart. Like, you, you we, I... I call them lawyers. We call them lay people. We call, you know, oh, they're not going to understand. They're so smart. They pick up on the smallest details. And that's, I, I think our jury system takes a lot of shit, for lack of a better term. But the juries are damn good. They really are. We'll finish here. Justin's best courtroom movies. I made the list. <laughs> this is a beautiful graphic. Look at my team is so good. Look at this graphic. That is the sexiest graphic we've ever had. Look how beautiful I look. Oh, looks so really good. This is my top five. And this is basically the criteria was like the at least 30 percent or more of the film takes place in a courtroom. So, I mean, there's there's some that are a little more ambiguous, but these all satisfy that requirement. Number one, A Few Good Men. Number two, the aforementioned Primal Fear. Number three, 12 Angry Men. Number four, My Cousin Vinny. And number five, the classic To Kill a Mockingbird. So I just what do you make of my list? Is this a terrible list? No, I think it's a great glaring list. omissions. What am I missing? There's no. I don't think there's glaring omissions. I think that um, there. There's. I'm trying to think of a, uh, a time to kill is missing. I think that's one of the. the That'd the, be the on other. my like honorable mention. That's a very. That's a good. That's the only one I could think that I would say quote unquote missing. Otherwise, I think I would just have this reorganized in a different way. I think my cousin Vinny, as far as legal movies go, 
is one of the most procedurally accurate movies Ooh. that you will ever find. If you want to know criminal procedure and want to just watch a movie, Law and Order is terrible for learning the actual procedure. My Cousin Vinny is actually pretty dead on on criminal procedure. There's a preliminary exam about probable cause. The evidence rules aren't bad. I mean, it it's pretty good. Opening statements, cross-exam. It's procedural. What, what's the worst? That's why I like it. What's the worst one? Is there like an is legally blonde the worst one? <laughs> in, ter- <laughs> in terms of the the oh. law and order is absolutely just my wife makes me watch it. And it's absolutely atrocious <laughs> with the terms of its accuracy. It's entertaining. Um, I mean, stuff like a few good men, like the dramatization of the courtroom, like none of that would actually like actually fly the theatrics in it. But it makes for a better movie, right? Yeah. But my cousin Vinny, surprising, and that's why it tops my list is because it's not only hysterical, it's the, one of the best, it's procedurally pretty sound. And then I liked Time to Kill, Mississippi Burning, if that qualifies. But that's a pretty darn good list, Justin. I appreciate it. To Kill yeah. a Mockingbird, I mean, that is... It's almost like has to be I, on there. Ha- you have yeah. to. You can't. Atticus Finch, although I'm just going to ignore the... I don't want to get into a literature discussion, but Atticus Finch, we're going to ignore the latter category, uh, or the latest book that came out about who he really was, apparently. Well, I didn't catch that one. Yeah, then we're not even going to talk about it. Atticus Finch is a hero to us uh, criminal defense attorneys, and you got to include it. Okay. And that's a classic. Yeah, that's a good one. Now, I I did lie. You want to take one from the audience here because I got one sent to me. Oh, no. I didn't even read it yet. All right, I'm ready. And then I promise I'll get you out. I got to find it. No, you don't promise. I don't know if we already addressed this. Okay, here we go. Um, Okay, this is about the Crumbly case from – this is from Garrett Elliott. He's a big fan of the show. Hey, Garrett. Good guy. Question, I'm just reading this verbatim. I did not vet this. All right. Question for Wade if it's able to be fit in. When the parents refuse to take a child from school, is that child still the school's liability? If so, at what point of the day does the child no longer become a school's responsibility? Is it dismissal when they're off school grounds, off the bus? Like, where's the line? So he's basically asking, like, okay, and he's talking about the Crumbly case. If the parents said, I'm not taking this kid, is the school still liable for that kid's behavior when they, they tried to get the parents to take him and the kid. I see. Stayed. I see. Yeah. So, so from a legal standpoint, I mean, I hope this answers the question. I mean, the decision of the parents in refusing to take him home doesn't absolve the school of liability, right? It doesn't say, well, we tried, right? It, they, that That's not a defense. It's certainly relevant to any, I mean, this, this all comes down. It'll no matter that dynamic aside. Okay. What you, the hypothetical, you just, you're not hypothetical, but the facts you just gave me, Crumley's come into school, don't take them home. What what result? How does that affect it? You still look at the school's conduct. What did they know? What steps did they take? Did they try to get them to send home? Did they should they have isolated them? Should they have put them, you know, with these school resources officers? Those are all, it's just another factor. So it doesn't, it, yes, he's still the school's responsibility in some sense, right? They still have to act reasonably, as all of us in society do. When I Drive on the street home from here tonight. I have to act reasonably with regard to the other cars. School still has to act reasonably with regard to its students and Ethan. But it's a relevant factor, right? Because if the, if they're saying they being any plaintiffs, families, Oxford families, what have you, say the school is at fault here because um, of X, Y, and Z actions. School can absolutely respond and say, well, we did take a, We weren't negligent. We did take appropriate action. We took him out of class. We tried to send him home with his parents. His parents refused to take responsibility for him. And we, you know, didn't have a choice. You know, we had we have him in school still. 
What's the res- what do you think the response to that? Well, would Jeffrey Figer is going to say there was a liaison officer. Eight, there you go. Sixty feet well, why away. Why didn't you call the police? Yeah. Well, the, <laughs> why didn't you call put- the police? They, the guy's on property. So, so the liaison officer. Does that right? make sense? Then that discussion still yeah. is had. Yeah. But it's it's certainly a factor. It doesn't absolve him. Of course, when he you know regulating off campus conduct is to Garrett's question is a huge question in the law. Not with regard to stuff like this. I mean, if if there's a violence off campus, you have to find the tie to the school where they were negligent. But anything, all of that's relevant, Garrett. I mean, if you, if there's a fight off school grounds after school hours, but something the school did to exacerbate or not, you know, take care of that, or that maybe they allowed a fight to, a problem to brew in school because of their negligence, they still might be responsible for that. So it doesn't uh, absolve them, although it also doesn't um, necessarily Bad evidence, so to speak. I hope that answers the question. No, I think it's a good you, question. Yeah, I like. I'm glad I, th- I remembered but that he sent one. I'm those acts, those acts. I, I just I, I return to the same thing, and maybe this is a good concluding factor on the Crumleys. I don't think any of us are. Many of reasonable people are going to disagree that the actions or the lack thereof that the Crumleys took or didn't take were negligent. They were. They're bad parents. If this is all true, yeah. Could they have reasonably foreseen? Murder. I don't know the answer to that. The civil the case is going to have to decide that. The civil case, which I think will be civil Much cases different. plural, that'll be coming. I I think that'll be an interesting discussion for a different day. Maybe I could bring you in on that one. I know you're well. Negligence criminal, is a different standard. Causation similar, but the proofs are different. So you don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, that preponderance it of the evidence, standard. right? Yeah. But it's still causation. You still the old there's the old famous case about being reasonably foreseeable, right? Um, the uh, Exploding fireworks in the train, if anyone wants to look up that case. That's the case on causation we all learn in law school. Was it reasonably foreseeable that this was going to happen because of your actions? If I go 120 miles an hour and hit someone and kill them, pretty reasonably foreseeable consequence of me going 120 miles an hour. You know, that's the proverbial case. But this is for a jury to decide. Yeah, I can't wait to... um you know, see this play out as, as terrible as it is. I, I'm just fascinated by, especially the parents' perspective and, and that it case. Is, and it, it's un, it, when you just take it out of the tragedy for a moment, which is hard to do, and and I'm, we're only doing that to have a legal discussion. It's a fascinating case study. Yeah, it's, yep. it's a. It would be if you wrote these facts, and and I wish it was just a written fake facts on a law school question. It, it could be one though. Uh, this would be the facts pattern that you would lay out about causation. It's a, it's a, it's a great exam question. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Unfortunately, I yeah. mean, because there is look, that's people don't understand this parents' case. Like we said, we maybe beat it to death. Frankly, yeah. it's it's not slammed up. It is not. It's going to be a problem. And I, if they get acquitted, and, civil and they cases, could be justifiably acquitted. By the way, this is me. Sure. I hate some. That's going to be a problem. In and the civil cases, remember, and we can have a whole nother discussion about civil cases. They're not. You know, you don't. There's no satisfaction in a lot of those because they're not gonna. They're not collectible. No. Uh, they're not money to be had. Sure, there may be some value in in a jury or someone saying yes, they're responsible. There might be some value in that. Um, 
but you know, criminal. It's a lot different to to have that in a criminal case. I mean, for closure and justice and, and whatnot. Well, the school district's collectible, but the uh, school district. Yeah. That's a whole different story. Yeah, that's and, an insurance, and yeah. that's that's you can get in the seven figures in that case. But man, it was a pleasure. I don't know what you're doing in court tomorrow. I hope it's not representing <laughs> someone wrongfully. You hope uh, I hope this guy at least very did mi- it. Very minor hearing. But, uh, okay, I hope this guy at least did it. You're, you know, <laughs> if we're if we're making you tired for some of the guys innocent. Uh, That'd be a problem, but uh, <laughs> it was a pleasure, man. I'm two protégés of a, a, a great program, uh, 88.1, the Biff. I know. Pete Bowers. Shout out and to Pete Bowers. Ron Whittables and uh, Mr. Carr. And, For, uh, it, it, that you have – the talent you had then – uh, pales in comparison to now, but it was still good then. I appreciate so, it. So uh, what you're doing, Justin, please, like, you know, uh, push this as far as you can go because this – the sports stuff, especially. I mean, I, I love when you do an off-topic too, but like, the quality of it is so far and uh, superior just, to so much guy. of the content. But it's guy. true compared yeah. to the content. Not enough people say it. Tony Paul said it. God bless him. Came out and said it's one of the best shows. And I try to say it, but I have a measly two followers on Twitter. What is I mean? waterboarded but, Scott Bernstein to get a testimonial out of him. <laughs> he keeps saying these nice things. I'm like, dude, you're a respected guy. Can I put something to print? He goes, I got you, bro. It, it is. It was like three months ago. I finally are, told him. You I are up on. there with Valeni and, oh, and the other no. talented ones in this. And this, I would rather listen to this show on the major topics than anything else. And it's absolutely it. the truth. That's discerning taste from you, man. So I appreciate that. And uh, honestly, the nature of the format, not to be self-deprecating, but it is guest-driven. I think the, the thing that I would compliment myself on is I think I have good taste in people who are good, and it's the guest show. I'm just kind of like guiding. But you have to have, to have quality talk. You have to have an analytical conversation about topics that matter. I mean, some I'm tired of hearing where the speed traps are in Oakland County on 97.1. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just... Um, and uh, so I, not to bash them because I seven one was going to sue me apparently for intellectual property. <laughs> I, well, you I, got a, I, I got a good lawyer sitting across for you. You, you love, caught wind of that one. I'd love that case. You notice no, how quickly that died down. He didn't like the blowback from that one. But no, Mike, Mike is very talented there and I advertise with him because I think Mike's very talented, but, um, I think there, I don't think there's a lot of high level sports discussion where you're talking about, um, you know, ownership and moves from like a, a different perspective rather than just the surface. And and you do that, and that's rare. So I, I just hope there continues to be an audience for it because it's really good. I appreciate it. And, again, I always do defer to the team, too, which on that note, the great and powerful odds on the other side of the wall here, Ben Augusta did a bang-up job. I don't give these guys a lot of that notice. That was really good stuff. I send them these prep sheets like while they're eating their lunch, the day of the show half the time, and it's like they're throwing that together on the fly. Very We're all stuff. busy. I told you before the show, I'm essentially, in terms of credits, literally a full-time student. <laughs> uh, by definition, I'm recognized as a full-time student based on credits, uh, job, and everything else we're doing. This is crazy. We all work hard. We sleep two and a half hours a night. You're going to get some guy uh, thrown in jail erroneously tomorrow because no I, kept here so I, I kept here so long. <laughs> but uh, appreciate you and appreciate, appreciate Ben. Uh, great and powerful odds. That is him, Ben Augusta. Cardinals plus four and a half. Is that, is that the pick? That's that's the only pick. Yeah, that's right. I'll, I'll roll with that. Um, I haven't even looked at the board. That's a, that's another discussion. And Eric Williamson on his couch and his boxers for sure, probably asleep by now. He's an old man. Uh, thank you guys. You look. I always say uh, fifteen to twenty percent. I'm going off beat, and uh, I've been dying to talk about this Crumbly case. I actually want to circle back on it. I got a very uh, terse no from a professor at Michigan State who is an expert in school shootings, a published expert in school shootings. He wasn't rude, but he was short and uh, not, 
lack of polite. Is it? There's something between rude and like polite. Kurt. And, yeah, like Kurt. Kurt, Kurt works. Let's go. He was very curt. So I am working actively as a piggyback to not talk about because you were on the crumbly case topic. I want to talk about yes, this is a school shooting, but school shootings generally. I'm fascinated by. What the fuck do you do? Is it is it? And I'm not even asking you. I'm just talking. No, yeah. Like what? What is the what is the answer? Is it? The, I, I'm not saying I agree with any of this, but like, is it arming all the teachers? Is it strip the Second Amendment entirely? It always becomes a Second Amendment issue. I don't know how you get that bleed like not to happen. I'm I, I'm data driven. Like, what's the data say? And is it just we have? Is there no way to get rid of it but for just? Gun confiscation. I, I don't know, but I'm fascinated by that. So if you, anyone out there knows any experts in the field of uh, uh, mass murder, um, you know, these school shootings, it's a, it's a macabre field. It's a very narrow field. It was actually hard to find the one guy I did. Uh, yeah, let me know because I'm fascinated by that topic. Yeah, I get someone from FBI or something. We're going to have to track somebody down. You're the one, one that the, has all the contacts. From those units. Well, let's see if we can find someone. That, Neil Fink's got to have his old Rolodex <laughs> somewhere. Some of these guys have got to be still working. We'll find or, you somewhere. Yeah, work on that for me. So, Justin Spiro, I'm going to go find out who won the national title. Game, <laughs> I, I didn't bet it, but I'm rooting for Georgia because my uh, cousin went there. And, come on, enough, Bama. Go dogs. Yeah, go dogs. Thanks, guys. We'll see you.